Welcome, everyone, to episode 19 of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rao. This is a week that we finally broken into the top 20 education podcasts on Podomatic. Woo-hoo. <laughs> yes, narrowly outranking the Jordan Peterson archive. <laughs> <laughs> Not even the new stuff, the archive? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the new stuff, I think, is still always going to be right at the top, but we've at least gotten past the archive. Education is doing some heavy lifting there. <laughs> <laughs> True, yes. But I think to go tired, I have to like teach some people a new language. That seems to be what... <laughs> But yes, all right. This is, I guess, technically not our first full reunion episode because we just did the Soccer Thread one, which was also a full reunion and also had someone named Mike in seat one. So I didn't even have to change that part of my spreadsheet. (laughs) But yeah, it's our first sort of like classic reunion, taking an episode from the first season when we were still figuring out how this worked and reuniting the entire lineup for a full general knowledge type episode. So we'll see if we'll see if there are as many baseball questions this time as last time. (laughs) The answer is no, by the way. <laughs> well, you could have done something about that. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> I mean, right, I, so- I was just kind of humiliated by how many baseball questions I got wrong last time. So I just, I had to stay away. <laughs> well, last you- time I got an answer wrong when the answer was literally staring in front of my face by total accident <laughs> with the Smashing Pumpkins album, Gish. And so that you know, I think that's a little more embarrassing than missing a pretty difficult baseball question. I'll say that. All right. So if you'll if you'll turn your camera around so I can see what's around you in the, now, so I can write some questions quickly. And oh, yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So uh, thank you to our top Patreon subscriber Darren Monk, and to all our other Patreons: Adam Hahn, Christine Welchel, Isaac Rennert, Andrew Darby, Cody Wilson, Ben Rothenberg, Patrick Friel, Jeremy Horwitz, Dargan Ware, Joe Graziak. Anthony Garino, Adam Villani, Peter Broda, David Croson, Mike Jesiorski, Tim Robert Gomez, Rene Carignan, and the entire Soccer Thread podcast. Uh, and, and to anyone listening, your name could go here. Please, if you wish, sign up at patreon.com slash recreational thinking. Our guests today are, just as in episode 10, Mike Jesiorski, Tucker Warner, and Jack Russo. Remember that order? It's exactly the same as episode 10, which was a while ago. So I wouldn't expect you to remember that part, but uh, you can remember it now. It's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So if we go in that order, starting with Mike, then Tucker and Jack, briefly state where you're zooming from and approximately one sentence about yourself. Mike Jesierski, an American living in Mexico in the town of Coriquia outside of Quiretro work at National University of Mexico Neurobiology Institute. And it's a real honor to be re- to be invited back. So thank you. Good Spanish pronunciation there too. <laughs> All right, uh, Tucker. Hey guys, I'm Tucker Warner. I am zooming in from Brooklyn, New York today. One interesting thing about me is that in the two years since we recorded my previous episode of this podcast, I have undertaken much more quizzing both recreationally and competitively. And yet I have still learned absolutely nothing about science. I forgot to mention, there's one other milestone we're marking today. Tucker, I believe, is our first ever three-time guest. Hey, well, that's nice. I appreciate that. That's very cool. Yes, he has that nice, clear, nice, loud, clear voice for podcasting. And yeah, has, yeah, has generally always... people have said I have a face made for podcasts, so... <laughs> The Garrison Keeler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and he's generally had a nice state, even back when that was more of an issue because we were on Skype, but he's always had a nice stable internet connection as well. So he's he's been a pretty good guest. All right, Jack? Hi, my name is Jack Russo. I'm a Minnesotan living in California. 
San Jose, California specifically. And I'm a criminalist at a local crime laboratory. Ooh. All right. So that's, all that's, the, that's the usual reaction. I, get <laughs> I, 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 no, I remember the, the first episode, Yogesh was re- really, he was wowed by that. It's like, oh, that's cool. Yes. I just, I really wanted to start thinking, who are you by the who? But yeah. <laughs> I think criminalist is just the coolest sounding job title. Possibly have. <laughs> so what do you do? Crimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it's a, it's fancy. I'm a criminalist. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that was what does, Professor Moriarty called himself. Yes, it does have the downside that if I give someone my business card and they took a like scalpel to it, they could just say like criminal on it. <laughs> Tobias Funky problem. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I would make a reference to the last of Sheila, but no one but me has seen that movie. I discovered in episode 23. So, all right. So you all know how this works, but just for the audience, if there's anyone new in the audience, the game's in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. First round, the three R's round allows me to reuse, reduce, and recycle prior material. These questions, I call them a warm-up. They are not easy the way some people think warm. Some people think the word warm-up implies easy. These are not easy questions. I think last time, collectively, you all got one of them right. Uh, <laughs> So we'll see how it goes this time, but uh, yeah, they'll also be worth, they'll be worth a tenth of a point, which can be used as a tiebreaker in case we need it. It's only once ever been needed before, but it's, you know, it's fun to have a record of it. And so in this round, you'll answer individuals. First person the question is directed at misses. It'll go to the second, then the third, the first two miss. So the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have, more time you have to think, and some potential answers could get taken off the table. You'll rotate to each of you will answer three times in first position, three in second, three in third. The rules will change after this round. I will explain that. There is one new rule since the last time you were on, the quote-unquote Jimmy Lee rule, basically designed to discourage passing. So you'll be penalized for not giving an answer unless you give an explanation of why you don't want to give an answer, which indicates you've at least put some thought into it. And just, you know, general reminder, content of the podcast is you talking through your thinking process. Don't internalize your thinking. Feel free to share any interesting connections or thoughts you have, but you don't need to talk just for the sake of filler. And I think with that, we can begin. So Mike is in first position. You ready, Mike? Ready. All right. And as... As actually I started doing because Jack suggested it, which turned out to be one of the best one of the best suggestions in the history of the podcast, I am going to be putting the text of the question into the chat. I, I find it a, a place of honor that I was mentioned in an episode that I wasn't on and not in a, in a, in a Jimmy Lee sort of situation yeah. <laughs> where like I've contributed to bettering the podcast. Yeah, I think I think the only listener suggestion that had more of an impact was Guy Jordan's suggestion to include bonus questions. Both of those changed the way that I did the podcast in a positive direction. All right. And then there's just, you know, since we're going to be doing this for four hours, I'm not going to keep my hands on screen the whole time. <laughs> so don't feel obliged. It's kind of like an old keyboard. I, I mean, I, I'm yeah, constantly I, like, doing this. <laughs> Like, that's what this is for, right? Like, I have my fidget spinner to do that. But yes. <laughs> Four hours, I ain't. Yeah, I could, I could drop the name of someone in a pejorative sense to warn you not to cheat, but I won't. <laughs> it's always intriguing. I want to, I almost want to do a forensic search. Hey, uh, criminalist, uh, investigate. Jack, 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 could you help out here? Yeah, that's, that's outside of my, my expertise. I cannot testify to that aspect of. Friends of science. 
I, I think based on all of our near misses last last time, you know we're not cheating. <laughs> yeah. Well, last time last time Tucker was on, one of his fellow contestants, Tom, made a made that comment that I think our scores are the best evidence that we're not cheating. <laughs> <laughs> but then Tucker went on to score extremely well in that episode. So yeah, it was one of those things where at the time it happened and I got extremely lucky guesses on three of them. So. All right. So first question directed at Mike. Mike, I recently came across a pre-code Hollywood star named Helen Twelve Trees, and idly wondered if her surname indicated Native American heritage. As it turns out, I must not be the only one because one fan site, after clarifying that the name came from her first husband, somewhat defensively adds... This interesting surname is English in origin. It might be natural to assume it was Native American because of the direct reference to nature it contains. It most definitely comes from England, though. There are other well-known people who bear the name. So that being said, it's not entirely unrealistic to think that a Native American performer might have been a major Hollywood star in the early sound era. I say that because... What man was officially listed as one of the top two box office draws in Hollywood in every year from 1933 until his 1935 death? I'm I'm sorry. I'm going to mute for a second because we have one dog that's kind of going crazy. Sorry, that's not going to play for on a podcast very well. I apologize. (laughs) We have have a beagle that's about 35 years old, and the only thing it can really do is cause commotion. Okay. What man was officially listed as one of the top two box office draws in Hollywood and every year from 1933 until his 1935 death? And looking for Native American man, and I can't come up with many names, and I don't know if this is the right era for the Lone Ranger, but I'm going to guess Jay Silverheels. I had a feeling that that would be guessed, and I, I think his heyday was a few decades after this. But I can see why you why you went there. Yeah, I've noticed while editing these, by the way, a lot of animal sound I didn't necessarily pick up on or didn't pay attention to during the the session ended up on the recording. And actually, the last one, the soccer one, was recorded outside on a porch. There's lots and lots of bird sounds. Lots of bird sounds. Um, Yes. Not uh, not quite as exotic, though, as when we had Bill Pennington from Australia. So we got actually like Antipodean birds in the background there. Oh, you get a nice kookaburra in there? <laughs> I don't think so, but uh, I'll have to go back and... <laughs> All right. Who's next in the order? Tucker. Okay. So definitely my weakness within movies is early Hollywood. I know world cinema much better from this era, which is the exact opposite of like 80s forward. Um, So I'm trying to think right now of a major box office star who I didn't really hear much of, or, you know, I'm not aware of having many films into the 1940s, which one would assume would be the case if someone died in 1935. So I am going to say, because this name came to mind, Douglas Fairbanks. Okay. Yeah, I think... I think, yeah, he was active, I guess, in the early sound era. He was, I guess, known as a silent film star. But unlike a lot of them, he actually had a really robust voice that you can hear in Taming of the Shrew with him and Mary Pickford, a very early sound film. Mary Pickford, I think, was one of those ones whose voice didn't quite match her screen image and she didn't have much of a career in the sound era. But yeah, his voice is pretty nice, but he's not the correct answer. So we'll go to Jack. So when Tucker says his weakness is in a certain area of movies, he certainly say that mine will definitely be not great in that area too i'm also not great with years but a name leaps to mind and it is probably it could be completely off base but i believe this person did do some acting 
acting. So I'm going to say Johnny Weissmuller. Ah, interesting. That's a good guess. I don't really know his, I guess that's kind of a germ. That's a very German name actually, but it, it could be tied to any, yeah, it could be tied to any, um, especially because a lot of Native Americans did end up having names from other cultures for a wide variety of reasons. Yeah. And this, this answer is definitely someone whose name sounds very, very kind of stereotypically, you know, Caucasian American. But yeah, he was, I think, I think first broke into the top 10 box office draw list in 32. Then he was, I think, number two in 33, number one in 34. And so he was a top box office star in Hollywood. And I think in the year of his death, number two, his death came right at the height of his, his popularity. And it occurred alongside someone else who was extremely famous at the time, the aviator Wiley Post. They both died together in a plane crash. And his name, he was someone who made no attempt to hide his Native American heritage. He grew up in the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. His father was in the Cherokee Senate. One of his most famous jokes, I think, was, my family didn't come over on the Mayflower. They met the boat. <laughs> his name was Will Rogers. Okay. As soon as you said one of his most famous jokes, I was like, oh, that might be Will Rogers. And that was <laughs> a bit of information that was missing. I, I was actually thinking that Jim Thorpe might have been an early sound star, but you know, that wasn't it. Yeah, yeah. He, he crossed my mind as well, mm-hmm. but don't think he died in 35? Yeah, I think he'd probably made a few films that fairly common at the time for big name athletes to come to Hollywood. I don't know if he ever became like a big star though. All right, who are we on? Tucker now for the first position on this. Tucker, The Moon Underwater is a 2008 album by Ryan Cabrera, an artist I am familiar with only because I once learned that the video for his debut single, On the Way Down, was partly filmed in front of a building where I used to live. The Moon Underwater is also the name of an atypically apolitical 1946 essay in which what thinker enumerates the characteristics of a hypothetical perfect English pub? Oh, you know, you really had me going with this, thinking that like a, you know, teen superstar singer from the OOs, I was like, ah, that's a category I can get. And then, you know, moves on to thinkers and writers of the 1940s, which is a little more difficult for me. Nonetheless, hmm, okay, if this is, you know, a hypothetical perfect English pub, I imagine this is someone from the UK or nearby islands. Not sure if that necessarily helps me. Who are political writers in the 1940s? Well, okay. See, someone who did often write politically in the mid the mid 20th century there. I'm not sure if he has any connections to the UK. I think he's American, but I don't know his work very well. Nonetheless, I know he wrote a lot about politics, so I'll say Gore Vidal. Okay, good guess. But I, yeah, I believe he was American. I think actually he also had roots in Oklahoma. I think his grandfather was an Oklahoma senator. Yeah, decent guess, but not the correct answer. So move to Jack. Yeah, underwater is an apt description for where I am right now <laughs> on this question. Yeah, political thinkers, likely English in the 1940s is not something I have a lot of names on. And I don't think the person I'm about to say is even English, but I'll just say Keynes. Oh, John Maynard Keynes? Yeah. Yeah, I think he was. I think actually he came up in the previous episode when I asked a question about Milton Keynes, which uh, <laughs> when, the, when the plan settlement was first made and they gave it that name, I think it was noted that it combined the surnames of two famous English Johns, one in the, the arts and one in the social sciences, I guess. So sort of they thought it made it was appropriate for sort of a vision of the future involving both sort of the, you know, humanities and the economic growth. That has nothing to do with this question, though. But yeah, <laughs> it's a good, good guess. Uh, incorrect. And pass to Mike. 
Okay, I don't know the answer, but there are things that are pointing me toward one writer who wrote in the 40s, who did write novels with political themes, and I believe also wrote about drinking and the, the sort of the epitome of the drinking life, and that's George Orwell. I'm going to try that. It's an odd coincidence, actually, because I'd written these questions a while ago and just kind of kept them. And then just this morning before this session, I, I started watching one of the only Connect specials from the past season, which I hadn't caught up to at the time. And there was a clue that like the first clue was Nancy Mitford's novel Love in a Cold Climate. And then the second clue was an album called like Ministry of Truth or Ministry of Love or something like that. And then the third was the J.D. Weatherspoon's pubs called The Moon Underwater. And I was like, oh, well, now I can get that because I know that all of those things are linked by the work of George Orwell. Nice job, Mike. Good gut. All right. So we will not have a shout out. life led me there. <laughs> <laughs> we will not have a shout out in this round either because Mike is on the board and Jack will now Amanda's be in first- lead. Yes. <laughs> I make this joke all the time, but it's an infinite percentage lead. <laughs> all right. We return to one of Jack's subjects from his previous episode, mythology, for this question. <laughs> really took me behind the woodshed on my mythology last time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jack, what huntress from Greek mythology so impressed Apollo with her lion wrestling skills that he um, kidnapped and impregnated her, as gods frequently did in those myths? Their sons included the Argonaut seer Idmon and the beekeeping deity Aristeos, the latter of whom was also a sexual predator who caused the death of Eurydice by chasing her into the path of a snake. So this woman, the one I'm asking you to name, was additionally the mother via Ares, a different god, of Diomedes of Thrace, not the Diomedes from the Iliad and the Trojan War, but the one whose man-eating mares were the subject of one of Heracles' twelve labors. This woman is said to have been the first ruler of an ancient city in present-day Libya that bears her name. The regions containing that city, which nowadays encompasses the entire eastern part of Libya, is still referred to by a word derived from her name. All right, so the additional ends on this are African geography, which is also not a strong suit of mine. So think of Greek huntresses. I wouldn't be... Artemis, because she's too highbrow as a as a god herself. So it seems like we're in a this will be a mortal huntress. Ancient city in present day Libya. Right, racking my brain here, and I think really the only huntress I can come up with who is even close to fitting this has a, a a a. There's usually a different story told about her, but it's possible she has all these other ones too. So I'll just say Atalanta. I kind of thought that might be coming as a guess. Definitely. Yeah. Like a mortal woman from Greek mythology who impressed men with her hunting skills. I mean, I'm sure they were impressive for a number of reasons, but that, that is what the myth focused on. And yeah, so a good guess. But as you probably intuited, this question's going a little bit deeper. So pass to Mike. Well, I'm, I'm pretty hopeless on uh, mythology of any, of any type. The only vague memory I have from childhood was a frightening one about a huntress, I thought maybe not a huntress, who was torn apart by wild animals, maybe wolves. But I, it, it would be pointless for me to, to really try to vocalize much more because I'm, I, I can only think of a couple of female names 
and I don't know where they place in Greek mythology, but I have this vague memory that there was a Diana. So I'm gonna try Diana. Yeah, Diana was the Roman name for Artemis, who, oh. yeah, yeah, as Jack kind of pointed out, wouldn't really fit here for a number of reasons, including being the sister of Apollo. So I'll pass to Tucker. Yeah, well, uh, I think I know even less about mythology, so this will be a fun one. In fact, like the only mythological part of this that I really recognized was the death of Eurydice, but that's mostly because I've seen Black Orpheus a couple times, and that kind of obliquely brings up that story. So this is all to say that I have basically no idea. I'm just going to choose a name of a celestial object that may or may not also share its name with a mythological character. I feel like most of those do, so we're going to say Cassiopeia. All right. I think, yeah, she was a queen, I guess, linked to sort of the Africa region. Yeah. There yeah, have been a lot of adaptations of the, or the Orpheus myth, including Hades Town fairly recently. I think most of them don't really go into why Eurydice died, though. So that part doesn't really get talked about. Um, yeah. So I guess maybe a few episodes ago, maybe, I don't know, episode 22 or so, I had a question about Benghazi, which was formerly, and I, I revisited it maybe in the next one, 23. Anyway, yeah. So Benghazi used to be called Berenice after an ancient queen of that region. That region was called Saranaika. It's still called that to this day. And it is derived from Cyrene, C-Y-R-E-N-E. Okay. Well, that's a name I've never heard. All right. Giving away that I didn't have mythology as one of my topics again. (laughs) (laughs) I I learned my lesson. All right. Back to Mike in first position. Virginia is known as the mother of presidents, but who was the last president to actually be born there? Shortly after his birth, his family moved to Augusta, Georgia, and lived there for the entirety of the Civil War before relocating to Columbia, South Carolina in 1870. Okay, Virginia, the last president to be born in Virginia, but hailed from Georgia. And so I'm trying to get the time frame pinned down here. Was this man president before or after the Civil War? So his family, well, it sounds like he would have been young. I mean, if his family moved, it sounds like he he was moved with his family. So I'm guessing he was president after the Civil War. So I don't think this would be a 20th century president. There's no 20th century president that I associate with Virginia. Going backwards, I... I don't, there's, there's really no president in the late 19th century that I associate with the South. Oh, well, no. Andrew Johnson, I think, was Tennessean. And then there's that set of bearded men up until McKinley. And I almost feel like I'm going to be throwing a dart here. 1870. I think I'm going to err toward the later part of the... 19th century. No, I'm not, I'm not really getting anywhere. I'm just going to really take a stab at a late 19th century president and say Harrison. All right. Yeah. I won't, I won't make you specify which Harrison. They were both, both 19th century, but uh, you know, it's, it's the, the old Roosevelt gambit, you know? Yes. yes. (laughs) I don't think William Henry Harrison was moving anywhere in 1870. No. (laughs) Yes, that too. But yes, they are, they are both equally incorrect. Well, I guess William Henry Harrison is a little bit more incorrect, but they're both, <laughs> <laughs> they're both incorrect. So I pass to Tucker. 
All right. So I was actually raised in Virginia. I lived there for 20 years and kind of in the opposite of the answer to this question. You know, I moved to Virginia shortly after birth and in fourth grade, we were taught Virginia history, which is all to say I'm going to apologize to my teacher when I get this wrong. But what we were taught at the time was that the last Virginian president was John Tyler. So that would be my answer. Yeah, that's, I think, another one who was long dead by 1870, although his his family clearly lives on because one of his yes, grandsons yeah. <laughs> one of his grandsons is still alive somehow. Mm-hmm. They definitely have a very long legacy of, of promoting racism. His, yeah, his wife famously was a defender of slavery. His son wrote something called like the Confederate Creed or something like that, that is still repeated. It's still taught to school children to this day, unfortunately. But yeah, uh, so um, he was from Virginia, even served. He was elected to actually represent them in the Confederate legislature, although I think he died before he could take his seat, but not the correct answer. So pass to Jack. So I think this is a little bit of a tricky one in that the president here is not capitalized. So I'm wondering if Yogesh is, is pulling a little, he's not, he never specifies president of the United States. So I'm just going to take a stab and say Jefferson Davis. Interesting. Yeah, I, th- I would think the wording of the, the city, or the word, sorry, the wording of the question would indicate someone who was fairly young during the Civil War. And, yeah. yeah, I think, you, yeah, you might have been remembering that Netanyahu question from your previous episode. <laughs> where you all, you all were, I said world leader and you all just assumed that, well, yeah, I think many of you just assumed that meant American when it didn't. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, here talking about mother, when I say who was the last president, yeah, I, I guess I didn't, I didn't explicitly say of the United States, but that was what I was thinking, certainly, when I wrote it. Um, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. But yeah, someone, you know, again, if they were young in the, around 1870, maybe they became president, you know, generally presidents tend to be middle-aged men. So, you know, maybe the early 20th century. And yeah, there's one early 20th century because not a lot of the ones from that time are associated with the South. Really, other than Jimmy Carter, not a lot of 20th century presidents came from the South. But there was one who, for much of the 20th century, was regarded as a great hero. More recently, people have looked back at his legacy and noticed he was incredibly racist. There's actually a very, very good narrative podcast called Edith that just came out like last year or so that was very honest about both him and his wife's highly prejudiced views of non-white people. His name was Woodrow Wilson. I don't know why I associate him with New York. I mean, he was a college president. He was president of Princeton. He was associated with that for a long time. So it's easy to forget. He grew up in the Deep South. His family was very much supporters of the Confederacy, and he carried those views with him throughout his life. I wonder not if great, he, most of these old presidents. Not, no. not <laughs> I wonder, if, did he speak with a drawl? I've never heard his voice. That's true. I think don't think any of us have probably heard his voice. <laughs> I figure it must have been recorded at some point, but yeah, I've never sure. heard it. Yeah. This long string of bearded white men are not very culturally sensitive. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, he was from the clean shaven era. I think after Chester Arthur, or yeah, I guess Cleveland. Basically, yeah. Once McKinley came around, yeah, I didn't have a ton, a ton of facial hair. I guess, uh, yeah, I guess Taft and Roosevelt had mustaches, but. So maybe Wilson was the one who started the trend of being clean shaven, but Harding, Harding famously was considered extremely good looking, although it's hard to really get that from looking at pictures of him now. <laughs> <laughs> but he is a name, Malcolm Gladwell called it the Warren Harding error, assuming that just because someone is like tall and dignified and handsome that they must be a good leader. <laughs> 
All right, Tucker, finally a science question just for oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> We're all used to hearing the word bubonic before plague, but bubonic plague is actually just one of the three major types of plague. By definition, what makes a plague bubonic? Or to put it in Jewish terms, how is bubonic plague different from all other plagues? Oh, I have actually heard this before. You know, due to recent world events, I have at least been reading up on like, you know, epidemiology and disease history. So this is one area where I at least have a little bit of, you know, some sort of knowledge here. Unfortunately, it's not really helping me get too closely to this, but I believe it has to do, if I remember right, with a particular symptom that occurs in bubonic plague that doesn't in the others. So I'm going to say, uh, which one do I want to go with? I'll say bubonic plague is different because it causes the skin boils or skin lesions. Mm. Yeah, I don't think, I think definitely, I'm asking definitionally, and I guess the different types may have different symptom patterns associated with them, but yeah, that's not sort of the definitional thing that makes them different. So mm. I will rule that incorrect and pass to Jack. So as a chemist, I haven't done much in terms of like actual epidemiology and that, although at the beginning of 2021, I was assigned to a COVID testing site and we had a lot of downtime there. And in my downtime, I decided to read a book about the Spanish flu. <laughs> and you can really find some, some history repeating in that, but going through this, there's something it's it's got something to do with like forming boobuses, which sounds like a weird euphemism for something. <laughs> but I think the boobuses are a result of lymph nodes being infected. So I'm gonna say bubonic plague is specific in that the infection happens mainly in the lymph nodes. Yeah, so the three major types of plague, septicemic, pneumonic, and bubonic. Septicemic would infect the blood, pneumonic, the lungs, bubonic, the lymph nodes. Exactly right. Nice job. Mm -hmm. Hold on. Were you, were you, were you ready to, to steal that one, Mike? No, and in fact, Tucker's, I thought Tucker's answer might be accepted because I did associate bubo, uh, bubonic with bubos, as you mentioned, and I thought it was the, the lesions, and when that was ruled out, I was kind of... I was at sea here. And you know, this is going to be happening for the next several hours. You see, I don't have a big library, but I have books here. And I'm going to be wanting to reach back at least once in a while. This time it would have been for Laurie Garrett's book, The Coming Plague, which I've dreaded picking up for the last two years, as you might imagine, but would really like to revisit at some point. Yeah. Yeah. When you started talking about skin lesions, I thought you were going to go with the whole like ring around the rosy myth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is a myth that that is a myth that that rhyme is. Oh, yeah. Um, no, it wasn't. I mean, oh. like when I was young, my, I remember my mother would say, you know, having learned it in India and she would say ring a ring of roses, which is actually like how it was first written down in the 19th century. So for it to turn into ring around the rosy in reference to something from centuries earlier, you would, ha it would have to evolve away from that, be not written down for centuries and then evolve back into that for no apparent reason, which is not very plausible. <laughs> And, and then also require school children to know about the symptoms of bubonic plague. <laughs> All right. Now we finally get to, for Jack, we finally get to the baseball question. The Singular. <laughs> 
The Japan Professional Sports Grand Prize was awarded annually to a person or team every year between 1968 and 2018. What future Oklahoma politician became in 1985 the only American to earn that honor as an individual? And professional sports. So uh, we, we all have this knowledge. The word baseball does not appear in this question, but <laughs> Yogesh has given it, has, has at least leaned us somewhat there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, but I... Trying to think about Oklahoman. So obviously there's no professional teams in Oklahoma. So it'd be somebody who grew up there. So who would be influential in Japanese sports in 1985? It's also from Oklahoma. At least I'm I'm just assuming that they would be from Oklahoma because it, t- it tends to be if you if you are a Sports person who ends up going into politics, it's usually where you've spent your entire career playing and or you're from that area. I'm just going to assume they're from here because it's Oklahoma. There's no professional, there's no big professional baseball teams in Oklahoma. Not I'm having a hard time just thinking of any baseball players who ended up becoming politicians, period. And then would have been active enough in 85. So they were active in sports in 85, but then became a politician later. Yeah, I could sit here and rack my brain, but he would have been in politics. Uh, I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels here and I'm not going to come up with anything better. This is a politician who was a former sports player, but I do not believe he played baseball. I'll say Jack Kent. All right. You're right. I did. I did provide an extra clue there by saying baseball, um, <laughs> as opposed to all of the other sports Americans went to Japan to play. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's sufficiently challenged. Yeah. But I mean, it is uh, sufficiently. It's clearly sufficiently challenging, even with that extra information. So I'm fine with that. All right. Pass to Mike. OK. In the 80s, the number of players from the major leagues, the U.S. major leagues that went over to Japan were relatively few and they kind of stood out. And there was a player that I recall who was gaijin in Japan and threatened a record of Sadarahu O, a home run record. And as a result in his, I think it was a seasonal record because in his last games he was walked pretty much every time he came to the plate to preserve the record. I don't know if this is that person, and what I've been trying to do is remember that person's name because it was typically a journeyman, you know, that who, who was kind of washing out of the, of the major leagues or, or was just struggling. There's, there have been some recent ones like Miles Michaelis and Eric Thames who've done that, come back and sign nice contracts. And, but I think this guy stayed in Japan for a while and gained some measure of respect. And so that would perhaps break down the barriers that allow him to get such an honor. And I'm kind of stalling because I, I'm waiting for that, that name to pop to mind. And my best stab is Bush. That's what you're locking in? Yes. All right. Now, I guess it's it's appropriate for an American expatriate to uh, to get this question, but unfortunately, was it right? It was wrong. 
Yeah, unfortunately, you couldn't get to the right answer, though. Um, okay. Yeah, I was thinking uh, of Randy Bush, so, okay. All right, Trucker? Yeah, I was, I was thinking of that story, too, and I'm in the same spot. I don't, uh, I don't recall exactly who it was, but I want to say... I want to say that one of the people who like one of the Americans who did play briefly in Japan in the 1980s, and I could be totally wrong, but I believe he was also, well, he might've also been on the 1985 Royals and that might've been why I'm thinking of him. But anyway, the answer I'm going to go with is John Mayberry, who I believe fit at least one of those categories. I'll say John Mayberry. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I've mentioned before, one nice thing about the format of this podcast is that since, you know, you get to, everyone gets to say what they're thinking and their thought process is recorded and, and broadcast. So even when they get the wrong answer, they can at least show that they had knowledge and were thinking of the right person. Yeah. So, you know, this was someone, I think he played for the Hanshin Tigers in, I think, 85 when they won the Japan series. Their fans famously looked around for you know, something that resembled their star player and found a statue of Colonel Sanders outside of a Kentucky Fried Chicken and knocked it into a river. And of course, the team's fortunes fell quite a bit after that. This is the so-called curse of the colonel. And his name was not Randy Bush. It was Randy Bass. Yeah, that's right. Ah. Uh. right. I mean, that was, it mm. was just like, it was around there somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were definitely in, yeah, like the story you told about him threatening Sadaharu O's single season home run mm-hmm. record and being walked, I think maybe even walked by the Yomiuri Giants, which was O's team. And I think when he was still involved with, yeah, that's all, that's all correct. You just, were just a few letters off on the name. And help me out guys. There was a ball player named Randy Bush, right? Who played for the Twins. Uh, that seems vaguely familiar. I don't think he was on like any of the World Series teams. I think I have like a tops card of a Randy Bush-esque name. So it would make sense. I'm not going to Google. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we can be wrap this later. <laughs> yeah. There's no notes for later. Mm-hmm. All right. So I believe Mike is in first position on this question. One more final cycle. Each of you will be in first position one more time. So start with Mike. Mike, what surname is shared by the brothers who earned an Emmy nomination for scripting the season one finale of Netflix's excellent American Vandal? They have jointly helmed two feature films, the latter of which, Netflix's The Block Island Sound, stars their sister, an actress whose roles include a very short-lived stint as the main ADA on Law & Order SVU. These questions are roller coasters because you're saying the brothers who earned an Emmy not have a chance. I haven't seen American Vandal. Then you ask about a sister, and she was on this, ask something I, I've watched, please, and it doesn't click. So I've not watched any of these. American Vandal, Block Island Sound, Two Brothers and a Sister. And, and then there's the, the whole, I never really watched Law & Order, but I know that there is the, the sort of, it's kind of like Spinal Tap drummers, isn't it? The ADAs <laughs> and drop off one after another. And there was there was one actress who was associated with an NFL player. She went to Gastineau, but I'm not going to come up with and that. And that's not, no, it's not. I'm not going to get close on this. I'm trying to aim for the two brothers and the sister. And I'm not going to, that's not going to click for me. So just to move it along, I'm going to try Johnson. Yeah, decent strategy. Not correct. So pass to Tucker. Okay. So there's definitely a very famous pair of 
sitcom or excuse Netflix original show writing brothers. And I don't believe they were involved in American Vandal at all. So I'm ruling them out. There's a very famous, very prominent team of filmmaking brothers who did start in sitcoms, but I don't believe they worked on American Vandal. And their next film is coming out very shortly on Netflix. So I don't believe it's them because I think their second film was titled something else. I'm sorry for being vague. I'm talking through my thought process, but like some of you may or may not be able to tell who I'm thinking about. Anyway, so I'm trying to think of other filmmaking brothers. The problem is the ones that I'm thinking of right now mostly got their start in genre work rather than sitcoms, which means... And I should clarify, I also just have not seen American Vandal. I'm aware that's kind of a shortcoming. I've heard it's great. Uh, so in, in the sake... Hmm. All right, there's one name that's coming to mind, mostly because I can't rule them out. And unfortunately, I'm not 100% sure I'm going to get their last name exactly right with all the letters. But I believe there's a team of filmmaking brothers whose last name is Skerig, something like S-K-E-I-R-I-G along those lines. So my guess is Skerig. I feel like a decent number of people who listen to this podcast were filling in the name of those first two pairs of brothers. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if I'm familiar with the ones you named, but yeah, I will definitely. So yeah, the people who make American Vandal, their current show now is called Players. It's also very good. And these brothers are also involved, I think, as producers and writers on that. Um, But definitely. What was that? (laughs) Sorry. uh, Did Jack guess yet? I was worried you were going to give away too much. No, no. I, I mean, I, I know I know how much I'm giving away. Oh, I, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you were building up to the answer. I don't mean to interrupt you as a host. My apologies. Yeah, no, I was just going to point out that, yes, mm-hmm. that not having seen, especially season one of American Vandal is definitely a hole in your viewing that should be addressed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's absolutely excellent. But yes, mm-hmm. uh, pass the question to Jack. Yeah, I was I was going to start out my my answer by saying uh, American Vandal is is very good. Mm-hmm. Got to look out for those ball hairs. Again, so I'm, just to, to fill in blanks, I'm sure Tucker was thinking about the Duffer brothers who made Stranger Things. And then I'm not sure who the sitcom one was, but perhaps it was the Farrelly brothers, but they have many more than two. I, I believe he meant the Russo brothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Who yeah. also have many more than... It would be funny for an Italian Russo to be an answer where I'm sitting here with the very French Russo. Um, <laughs> and... Is, this is the kind of question that if you asked me this question, I'm going to say four years ago when American Vandal came out and I was obsessed with it, I probably could have got it. But right now, um, I don't watch Law and Order at all. I did watch Amer- all of American Vandal, but that was too long ago for me to... I, I assume that since they scripted the, the finale, they're also the creators of it. So their name was probably all over it. And I can't... I don't have anything to pull from there. So I'll just say... Uh, the Smith brothers. All right. Yeah. Again, yeah. A variation on Mike's strategy. Can't fault you for that. But yeah, these are other, I think from, I think from Rhode Island have a very, very Irish sounding last name. And in fact, their sister, it was very odd because on their Wikipedia pages, they don't actually mention the Wikipedia page for each does not mention the other brother in any way. (laughs) <laughs> which is and their sister's wikipedia page although it actually has you know an extended paragraph in the personal life section which mentions her husband and her children and even gives like the full names of her children it doesn't mention her brothers at all 
which is odd because she was in both of the feature films they directed and had a lead role in the second one. Not uh, even in like the information <laughs> sidebar of family members? <laughs> I, I believe not, no. But it stuck in my head, though, because they mentioned that one of her sons was named Declan, again, keeping with the Irish theme, and of course had her husband's surname. But if he had had her surname, his full name would have been Declan McManus, which I would have found <laughs> very amusing. And uh, I guess if anyone listening uh, doesn't know why, you can just Google Declan McManus. <laughs> but yes, her name is Michaela McManus. She had a very short-lived stint, I think. She was in the opening credits for an entire season, but after about nine or so episodes, they just wrote her out entirely. And uh, yeah, the a terrible, brothers... A terrible lawyering accident. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the brothers are named McManus as well, yes. Well, Yogesh, you know, I've uh, been trying to follow your advice and watch lots more TV. And, and in fact, you know, when my wife asked, what's the next series to watch? I said, well, my online friend really recommends this one. So let, we sat down to watch Big Little Lies, which is, you know, that's, no, it's Pretty Little Liars. Well, yeah, I okay. can't keep the <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> It's too much TV. <laughs> Listen, we all know Yogesh loves Big Little Lies. <laughs> Talks about it all the time. He yeah. smits that one day yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. He's got to reference it in every yes. episode. And we'll it's just leave it at that. It's my favorite Fleetwood Mac song. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, I don't know if my advice is so much to watch lots more TV as to watch very small amounts that are targeted. <laughs> But okay, um, Tucker for this one. Julianne McNamara, the ex-wife of baseball player slash Charlie Sheen enabler Todd Zeal and mother of This Is Us cast member Hannah Zeal, was a gymnast who qualified for the boycotted 1980 Summer Olympics and finally got a chance to shine at the 1984 Summer Olympics, where she won a team silver and individual silver and gold. Her individual gold medal came in what event? where she had to score perfect tens in both the optional round and the final just to tie China's Ma Yanhong. Okay. We can count this as a baseball question, right? Sure. Uh, <laughs> okay. So if I remember right, I think 1984 was the Mary Lou Retton year where she won many of these. So... If I knew what events that she won gold in, that could really help narrow this down a lot. And let's see, where is what's a what's an event in gymnastics where perfect tens are, uh, let's say, a little more common? And let's hope I can get the statistically more likely answer here. So I'm going to rule a couple out here. I don't want to give away too much, just in case. But I think. One where you can get a perfect 10, or at least you could have more frequently in the 80s, would have been balance beam. So I will say balance beam. Decent guess, but not correct. Pass to Jack. Yeah, I feel like this is a this is a question where being later is a definite advantage. Because <laughs> I feel like we're we're throwing darts at a board of women's gymnastic events. But I kind of like the idea of it being a a one that there's probably not too much. I'm not going to use the, like I use the word randomness, but you know, it just seems not as a little more consistency would be in this one as you're not doing too much high flying. So I'm going to say the floor exercise. 
All right. I think I think there's only like six women's gymnastic events or something like that. So you and uh, Tucker each took one <laughs> off the table. So I think I think Mike has a one in four shot. So floor exercise balance beam off the table. And then thinking through the others, there's uneven bars, parallel bars, but the, like both Tucker and Jack were saying, I think their logic was sound. To get a 10 mainly involves avoiding mistakes. And I think it's more likely to avoid mistakes if what you're doing is abbreviated. And I think, I think if I have the, 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 the event I think of as most abbreviated is the Kerry Strunk event, which I think is called the vault. And I'm not sure that's the term for it, but that's what I'm going to say is vault. Well, vault is the term for it. That much is correct. But, oh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> the answer we were looking for here was uneven bars. Okay. Yeah, I if figured you since... given us three more guesses, we would have nailed that down. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Actually, I'm not... Well, how many women's gymnastics event? Uh, I don't think they yet. do even bars. Even bars is just men. Yeah, sorry. I actually, oh, oh, oh. It, it's actually men's gymnastics have six events. Women's gymnastics actually only has four events. So you managed. <laughs> yes. Wow. That was, that was impressive, guys. We did it, guys. <laughs> we could have worked together on it, get three guesses and still got it wrong. I figure any event that needs a spotter would be harder to get perfect tens on. That's why it's all the more impressive that she did. <laughs> all right. Final question of this round. We will start with Jack in first position. All right. Before she was Miss Sloan, Jessica Chastain was Miss Julie in a 2014 cinematic adaptation of the Strindberg classic directed by what woman, better known as an actress? Chastain later tackled one of this actress's most famous roles in a 2021 American remake. Oh. What was Jessica Chastain in last year? That was a remake. This is where not paying attention to movies for the past three years is really going to bite me. Do that. Let's see. So also an actress, better known. So she probably hasn't directed too many different things. America. I, I had an idea of one person, but I think if she was famous for an American movie, that probably wouldn't be her initially i thought it would be pretty ironic if it was bryce dallas howard who has been doing some act some uh directing lately some of the better episodes of the mandalorian and also is confused with jessica chastain a lot but now including, I'm just... including on episode 15 of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> but now i'm just filling for time thinking about things that aren't actually getting me closer to an answer god what was remake oh the remake was american I could, you know, as, as has been my style lately for answering trivia questions, I have the, the initial thought that comes into my head and I can't, once I'm on it, I can't, I can't move away from it. I think this is going to be wrong, but I'm just going to say Helen Mirren. All right. Decent answer. Definitely a correct answer two episodes ago, but <laughs> not here. So pass to uh, Mike. Okay. You know, I do try to keep up on what women are directing films these days. And it's it's a good sign that I am running behind on how many women are getting behind the camera. 
and I do not recognize this, you know, particularly a woman better known as an actress who did direct this film. So I'm trying to aim for it from an actress. And I, I'm also keen on the word American remake, which to me indicates that the original might have been filmed outside the US. I have an actress in mind. I think it's probably unlikely, but she is married to a director. So I'm gonna guess Julie Andrews. Okay, that's interesting. I'd like to see Jessica Sassane as Mary Poppins. That would be, <laughs> but not correct. So Tucker. Okay. I agree that the American remake likely suggests that this actress is, well, this actress slash director is not American. I do think that it's likely somebody though, who, you know, must speak English. So there's not a huge language barrier, but I'm not ruling out, you know, like foreign language cinema here or non-English, I suppose. And someone who's kind of been in my mind for, you know, potentially like somewhat resembling, you know, perhaps an older version of a Jessica Chastain, at least in casting world where, you know, you could put someone of similar, you know, stature and hair color to a Jessica Chastain version that's, you know, a generation older. And I'm going to say someone who I believe has also directed recently, Isabel Huppert. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, the American remake, I think, sent you all kind of to outside of America, which was the right path. None of you really followed kind of the Strindberg thread, because even though this film was for some reason relocated to Ireland, Strindberg was famously a Swedish playwright. So I kind of hope that might send you toward, you know, people. So this woman actually is Norwegian, but the bulk of her career was in Sweden. She is, of course, best known for multiple collaborations with Ingmar Bergman, her name Liv Ullmann. And the remake was Scenes from a Marriage. I didn't even recall that that was remade. No idea. Yeah, it got very good reviews, but we live in the peak TV era when, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scenes from a Marriage Fame was actually originally made, I believe, for Swedish TV. And mm-hmm. for that reason, was disqualified from the Oscars. And, mm-hmm. you know, multiple, I think several hundred Hollywood actors signed a petition asking the Academy to reconsider that decision because they thought Liv Ullman's performance was so great that she deserved an Oscar nomination, at least, if not an Oscar for it. But she was disqualified under the rules. Okay, so we end that round. I believe Mike 0.1, Tucker 0.0, Jack 0.1. And <laughs> we, we, doubled, we doubled our success from the first episode. Exactly. Yes. Very good. All right. And now we move into the main game, starting with round one, the not all that hard round. In this round, in all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. Standard caveats, not intended to be a fair comprehensive test of your knowledge of the category. It may relate directly or obliquely to the category. Keep everyone on their toes. I won't reveal the categories up front, though they will likely become evident over the course of the game. Before you can answer, your opponents get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. If I pass it over to you without telling you if they've missed it, if you know it for certain, you can just confirm, but otherwise operate under the assumption that they didn't get it because you won't get points just by copying their answer. There might be bonus questions if you get stolen from. They will go with some, but not all stolen questions, and they will relate to the question, but won't always fit into the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. These questions being not all that hard are worth two points as a steal, one point as a specialist, and now and for the rest of the game, the points will go to both stealers, even if only one knew the answer. So we'll begin with Tucker and Jack to try and steal from Mike. Here is your question. 
Nathaniel Pope is credited with adjusting Illinois' northern boundary from the southern tip of Lake Michigan to the parallel at 42 degrees 30 minutes north latitude. As a result, when Illinois became a state, it gained not only Chicago, but also what town that proved to be a rich source of lead ore? Ooh. Jack, where are you from? Minnesota. All right, you've got a little bit of regionality here over me. Nonetheless, like northern Illinois towns, like the really... If I'm reading that correctly, I'm thinking Chicago suburb maybe, but that also doesn't yeah. really seem to track. It's just that I can name a couple Chicago suburbs and not really anything else. Yeah, I think we're looking for a... So, mm-hmm. moving the northern boundary from the southern tip up. So that means it's going to be a north Chicago suburb. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, like the way I get to know cities is by driving around. And most of the time that I've been in Chicago, I've either been on a full run through or just trying to get to the University of Chicago to play quiz ball. <laughs> yeah. Such that I have not, and I have not been driving in those situations. Mm-hmm. So Chicago suburbs, I guess. I mean, there's like Aurora, Evanston. I'm trying to see if there's anything yeah. that like hints toward, you know, lead. Yeah. Do you know what the, the, the Latin name for lead is? Why its chemical symbol is? Well, it's plum, plum, plumbum. Okay. So that's is there anything it's... that sounds like that in an Illinois suburb? It'd just be, is there a Chicago suburb that's just like something about plumber? Is there a plumberville? Uh, oh, I don't know. Chicago. What town? I guess it could, it could be Eastern or West. Well, there's not much East of Chicago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in, in terms of cities, unless that's where Atlantis is. So I think we're looking West, West or North of Chicago. I think of our oh. only options. Yeah, just trying to think like if, if there's any other connection that points me toward anything besides guessing a random suburb. Um, yeah, and I'm in this weird situation where all the suburbs of various cities have all just been yeah. moved around in my head. Is, is Naperville a Chicago suburb? That's Illinois, I believe. So <laughs> couldn't necessarily tell you of how close it is to Chicago, but I think, I don't know I think that's that in the state in question here. There's Naperville. Naperville may be way outside of Chicago. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Yogesh wouldn't have mentioned the lead ore if that didn't mean something. Yeah. So what what other Chicago suburbs do you have? Uh, let's see. We got Aurora, Evanston, yeah, I think Naperville. Like, there's like DeKalb, I want to say, in Illinois. DeKalb. Area. Yeah. Let's see, now that's... Is there a DeKalb company? No, I'm, thinking, I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of DeWalt. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's not related to Chicago at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess that's another way to go about it. If there's like a company famous for like lead based products that, you know, might share a name with a town, but it's like Ticonderoga, but that's going to be clearly from yeah. upper New York. Yep. No, I don't know. For, from my perspective, I don't have much beyond, you know, kind of guessing one from the names we've listed so far. Yeah. So if, I think you might have like just a slight bit more of knowledge if you want to uh, yeah. take your best guess here. But I I think I'm tapped out from what I can offer here. Okay. How do you feel about Naperville? Let's go for it. Sounds good. All right. We'll lock in Naperville. All right. I went to high school in Aurora. So Naperville were our main rivals. So the answer to how I feel about Naperville is influenced <laughs> by that. <laughs> <laughs> But it's a, a decent guess, but not correct, Mike. Yeah, I mean, it, 
it, it's really hard. And, you know, I wait to see your, your categories, of course. You know, if you haven't lived in an area, uh, I grew up in Chicago, and it's not really known, as far as I can remember, for being rich in minerals or mining. So you kind of have to get away from Chicago and get to the western part, the northwestern part of the state. And I think the town we're looking for is Galena. That's what you're looking at? Uh, yes. Yeah. So one of the most common lead ores is lead sulfide. Galena. Yeah. And that is, as someone from downstate Illinois, I have to keep reminding people that there's more to the state than Chicago, even even in the northern part. I mean, Rockford is very far north, but it's not anywhere close to Chicago. Galena is even further west. It's practically, it's right next to Iowa, basically. It's in the extreme northwest corner of the state. It became famous in the 1860s, though, because Ulysses S. Grant was living there at the time he was tapped to lead the Union Army. But yeah, the connection to lead ore, that's what was. Is, is, Galena, is Galena on 80, I-80? I don't know. I don't know either. Because if I it is, know. I have definitely driven through it. <laughs> <laughs> is the ore named after the town or the town named after the ore? I believe, I, actually, I used to think that the ore was named after the town, but while researching this oh. question, I, I learned it's actually the opposite way. The town was named after the ore. Yeah, like Thanks. Galena has been a known lead ore for a long time. It has to predate the city. All right. Mike and Jack to steal from Tucker. In the 1982 NCAA Division I Men's Basketball Championship game, UNC's Michael Jordan scored the winning basket with 15 seconds remaining. However, the tournament's most outstanding player award went not to Jordan, but to what future Lakers star teammate of his? Okay, I'm, I'm paired with who? With Me, um, Jack. 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 Okay, thank you. Okay, so 82 UNC defeated Georgetown. Correct. Uh, I am not great at college basketball. Okay, well then I'm going to kind of take lead if that's okay. And I, I'm, I'm going to. I have a superpower in, in this group. I'm a lot older than all of you, so <laughs> I'm just going to use that like a club. Um, and I remember. It's true. I was not alive when this happened. <laughs> this is actually when I started. I, I was in college when this happened. Okay, that gives you an idea. This was a rather dramatic finish to a championship game. Jordan scored with 15 seconds left. Georgetown took the ball down and a, a, a Tar Heel stayed off to the wing and the point guard, I can't remember his name, passed it and turned it over thinking he was throwing to a teammate. And I believe that that was James Worthy. And James Worthy, I believe, went on to start with the Lakers. I can't be certain of it, but it ticks several boxes for me. And Worthy would have been, sorry, worthy of being the outstanding player. So, Jack, if you're okay with that, that's the step yeah, that I'm going to take. For, for a lot of these older basketball players, there's just kind of a thing where, like, yes, I have heard of that person, and I have heard of James Worthy, so... And just for, if nothing else, voting James Worthy as the most outstanding player is just yeah, I, like I, I have co this cosmically right to do so. <laughs> I have this uh, this fear that I'm forgetting like a big man, like a you know a center or uh, who might have been named most outstanding player because in 2005, North Carolina beat my beloved Illinois team because their big man just destroyed down low. And I've 
with Preston's name. I think it's May. But I think it was probably between Jordan and Worthy. I think they were the two stars of the UNC team in 82. So if you're okay with that, Jack, let's do uh, it. We'll lock in. We'll, we'll, we'll lock in Worthy. All right. A case of nominative determinism, apparently. <laughs> Tucker agrees, right? Yeah, I'm pretty positive that this is James Worthy. And it is. Very good. Do, do I have that play correct? Who was the point guard for Georgetown? Fred Brown, I think. Okay. I don't remember if Worthy was the one who got the steal on that play or not. It might have been, but I, I remember Fred Brown throwing away the ball. All right. Tucker and Mike now to try and steal from Jack. Lindsay Fonseca and David Henry filmed their How I Met Your Mother scenes as future Ted's daughter and son at the beginning of the series. So while they were still credited through the end of its run in 2014, they were free to take other work. Fonseca, for instance, spent 73 episodes as a Russian spy slash assassin named Alex on Nikita. Meanwhile, Henry spent 106 episodes as the older brother of a perhaps far more ruthless and destructive girl named Alex on what supernatural sitcom? This is me and Mike, right? Mm-hmm. To steal from Jack. Mike, I believe I know this one called David Henry played the older brother of Selena Gomez on Wizards of Waverly Place, a show that my sister has seen every episode of, which annoyed me to no end when we were sharing a TV in high school. I'm going to be like Jack and just sit over here in the corner and let you plow ahead. Our answer is Wizards of Waverly Place. Yeah. I was actually speaking of TV recommendations that might be unexpected. I was a pretty big fan of the first two seasons of that show, mainly because, as I sort of point out in the question, they made no effort to make the lead character a remotely good or redeemable human being and made no effort to hide this fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's now fairly common, you know, for shows to have really terrible, irredeemable people as protagonists. Mm-hmm. On American TV, that was fairly uncommon at the time. I mean, it was kind of thought of a British thing to build your show around a terrible person. So this was very much, I kind of felt like an American blackadder, like someone who was entirely self-interested and just schemed unethically to get what she wanted. And the show made no effort to conceal the fact that that's who she was and what she was doing. Especially for a kid's show. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. That made it so much yeah. more subversive, in my opinion. Not, not, I guess if I had actual kids, I wouldn't want them to watch it. But yeah. as, an ad- <laughs> as an adult, I could see what they were doing. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, uh, as someone who saw way too many kid shows from like 2007-ish, it just felt like every main character of those shows was like studio engineered to annoy me at 13 or 14 years old. You know, the the worst offender of those was the uh, Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, but Wizards of Waverly Place got caught up in the uh, in the rush also. Yeah, again, I was also a pretty big fan of Sweet Life, but also because like, again, having that age perspective, I could just be like, yep, young people are annoying. It's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, as as one of my professors in grad school pointed out, like kid shows of that era, they were made by people whose like roots. So like, for instance, Rich Correll, who directed the majority of episodes of Sweet Life and Zack and Cody, was the son of Charles Correll, who was one half of the duo behind Amos and Andy. And basically, you know, was part of a tradition going back to vaudeville. And as my professor pointed out, this was essentially sort of the current iteration of those old vaudeville routines often found their way into these shows. So from a sort of historical comedy perspective, it was fairly interesting. But all right, Tucker and Jack now to try and steal from Mike. Future Academy Award nominee Haley Joel Osment played the titled role in a 1997 Walker Texas Ranger episode called Lucas. In one notorious scene, the sickly yet optimistic Lucas notes that Adawa Yoli means little visitor in Cherokee. Another character replies, pardon my French, but I'll be damned. At this point, 
Lucas states, what six-word non-sequitur sentence that remains one of the most memorable memes birthed by that show? Oh, this should be something something about Arrow. Oh, is this something about, like, I'm going to die soon? Uh, Yeah, I don't... Uh, Walker, Texas Ranger memes. Yeah. From Mike. (laughs) Uh, This is one of those things that I should generally be aware of. Six and I don't know if I know this at all. Unless the non sequiturs is this theme, which would be yeah. outstanding. <laughs> okay, so something that would be a double, so little yeah. visitor. Pardon my French, but I'll be damned. Mm-hmm. Is it another thing that starts with like, pardon my French? Like, could that be it? Like, does he just kind of like repeat the same sentence structure back at the other character? Maybe. I mean, that, that's kind of the reason I put in non sequitur to sort of steer you away. Oh, non sequitur yeah, yeah. literally, literally means it does not follow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, yep. The, the most literal version of that. Yeah. Um. All right. So now I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just picture Haley Joel Osment laying in a bed with the meme font underneath and trying to think of what the six words would be. I think it's something about dying. Okay. So what's this? We got to come up with a six-word sentence. Yeah, about dying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if we can get it to six, 17 syllables. It'll be a haiku. Yeah. <laughs> so, so again, just to be clear, when I say meat, you know, again, I'm I'm sort of thinking in the Richard Dawkins sense of like something that gets culturally transmitted, not yeah. like an image with text on top mm. of it. Yeah, that's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> Weird that the Family Feud guy made that up. Uh, Thank you for the silent laughter, by the way. I appreciate that on a podcast. (laughs) Silent approval. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. So I think we're on the right track, though. So, what would this possibly be? Yeah, like, like, is it something that gets quoted elsewhere, maybe, or? So, like, guess I'll die now is like a is like a current sort of yeah thing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. God, this seems fairly attainable, but I can't. Like yeah. getting to the six words is. Yeah, I have a feeling like. like it's... Well, anyway, guess I'll die now. <laughs> I don't hate it. <laughs> you know. What else is next? Like, so like maybe the dying. Yeah. Uh, let's guess see. I'm as good as dead. I don't. I think you. I, I like yours a little better. Well, he wouldn't be optimistic. Like he wouldn't be optimistic and say, "Guess I'll die now." Yeah. I feel yeah, I, this is kind of thing. Like I've seen this at some point. Mm-hmm. Like there's no way. Like I, I feel like I can't have never seen this before, or have never seen this before. That can't be. But I have no memory of this whatsoever. I'm gonna die now. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, is there like a like an opening phrase or like a closing? Well, that? well, anyway, I'm gonna die now. <laughs> That's not optimistic, though. Yeah, unless he's just stoked about. <laughs> yeah, like uh, maybe it's about like going to heaven, like seeing somebody in heaven, something along those lines. Well, anyway, I'll see. You know, well, anyway, see you in heaven. Sure. That's <laughs> all right. That's the best we can yeah. walk in. Well, anyway, see you in heaven. All right. That is definitely a six-word sentence. <laughs> what do you think, Mike? One of the joys of appearing and playing on this podcast is giving Yogesh 
categories that you think through and then seeing what he does with them mm -hmm. and realizing that it doesn't matter how how much you think you know yogesh is gonna <laughs> find a way to, <laughs> to humble you and and it's I, i'm just very entertained by it because i know why i should know this but it happens to fall into a gap it just happens to fall into a gap and so I, I, I'm not going to come up with a six because this is, is kind of uh, yucky weight and I don't know it. I know why I want to know it, but I don't know it. So I'm just going to kind of borrow from what Jack and Tucker were bouncing around and use, use a Jimmy Lee dodge here and say a six the six words because i'm dying to find out what it really is so i'm going to just say well i guess i'll go now okay i was wondering if i'm dying to find out or something like that <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 was, I was thinking about using i don't want to to you know i won't break the jimmy lee rule how's that <laughs> <laughs> i'm just answering so i won't get fined yeah <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It was it. Mm -hmm. it, was it. I can't let I can't let down Jimmy Lee. That's a close. I don't know Jimmy Lee. I feel like I'm just really just slagging the guy for no reason. It's terrible. I don't... This is the part of the podcast where we just try to come up with podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is that's the academic purity that Jimmy refers to. Going to get a strongly worded email. <laughs> All right. Yes, I'll have to do the, the Ron Howard in Arrest Development disclaimer. We are not in any way making fun of Jimmy Lee. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I like Jimmy. He's a, been a very, he was a very good guest. And yeah, very, Jimmy's yeah. a great guy. Yeah. We, we like Jimmy here. Yes. Okay. So when I give you the answer, I wonder if it will trigger a memory of where you've heard this before. And if it doesn't, I guess I'll just leave it as a mystery that will be resolved next round. But <laughs> the correct answer is Walker told me I have AIDS. <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah I've, oh yeah i've heard that once wow. and that is so non sequitur that it, it can't, i couldn't find storage in my brain that's oh my god yes. yeah. doesn't make any oh. sense yeah yeah okay. oh man all right we'll move on to mike and jack to try and steal from tucker now Calling back to the three R's round, speaking of, just in case you thought you heard the last of Cyrene, you haven't, speaking of Cyrene, as we were earlier, and referring specifically to the, the ancient city in present-day Libya, not the, the mythological figure, it is the hometown of which biblical character, described by the synoptic gospels as carrying Jesus's cross on the way to the crucifixion? Nowadays, usually depicted as black, this figure has been portrayed on stage by Paul Robeson and on screen by, among others, Sidney Poitier in The Greatest Story Ever Told, Swiss Ghanaian actor Jareth Merce in The Passion of the Christ, and thanks to a time travel twist, Lamar Usher in the So Bad It's Good action, in scare quotes, thriller, in scare quotes, Assassin 33 AD. So me and Jack? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Bible figures is a real black hole for me. So I think yeah. it's really just a, a, a movie question. Well, okay. I kind of repressed all of my Catholic upbringing. There is 
in the Stations of the Cross, which all good little Catholic boys and girls know, there are 12 stations and one of them has to do with somebody helping Jesus carry the cross. And I, I'm not going to get it from the, any of the actors. I'm just, I'm going to get it from all the stuff I learned when I was trying not to go to hell. And... Well, you're thinking, I'll my, say, the, the only time I've been through the Stations of the Cross was one time where my dad and I went through a drive through one because it was a whole bunch of Pokestops in Pokemon <laughs> Go. So we didn't have to get out of the car in the middle of December to get all the Pokestops. <laughs> That is my so, biggest interaction with the Catholic Church. <laughs> wow! So you, you God like God works in mysterious ways. Yeah, you, you do not remember six, any of the names of the right. Pokestops. That was <laughs> you, you picked up six, six Pokemon and ten disciples. Uh, well, Pokeballs. So, <laughs> I guess apostles is the right word. Okay, so going back to childhood, and this this would have been so it is. Cyrene is the hometown of which biblical? Oh, right. Okay. So Cyrene. Okay. I was thinking I needed to come up with a name in a town. Well, that could, because that triggers somebody. Is there a character that's someone of Cyrene? Right. I was thinking that the syntax of this answer was something of something. But Cyrene, I said I'd not heard of it before, and I, I simply don't, it doesn't ring a bell. But there were, in Jesus's time, there were popular names. And who was this, who was this dude who somewhere around station six or seven had to help Jesus schlep the cross? Didn't a lot of people help him at some point? Well, this, this was one who was kind of, it says, described as carrying the way it's depicted. And I haven't seen any of the biblical movies. I'm kind of out on biblical movies. Yeah, I haven't seen. Uh, <laughs> I've heard of two thirds of these and I've seen none of them. I think the, the Romans grab somebody out of the crowd and say, hey, you help him. But the first name that came to mind was, and I don't, if we have to come up with a, 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 a full, like a given name, surname, I'm going to be out. But I don't. I don't. I, I don't think there's a lot of biblical characters with surnames. Yeah, the first name that came to mind was Joseph. I have no reason to, and there are other male names, you know, that appear in the Bible, and, and certainly there are Josephs in the Bible. But I, I'm trying to plumb, you know, 50 plus years of old knowledge, and I'm not, you know, when I hear it, I'm going to say, oh yeah, my initial impulse was joseph i have no knowledge to dissuade you from that or to support it okay so then we're going to lock in a stab of joseph all right i think this is another case like the randy bass one where mike clearly knows the correct story and is remembering it mostly accurately <laughs> but he's not remembering the part that's being asked for here so. the difference is that i feel bad about the randy bass one <laughs> <laughs> That's knowledge, I, that's knowledge I should retain. <laughs> so church, church of baseball installing more guilt yeah. in you than the Catholic yeah. Church. <laughs> yeah, probably not going to be a surprise here, but my category that I selected was not the Bible, you know, probably because we did not watch Assassin 33 AD in youth group. So that does make a difference here. I've been thinking, you know, in order for somebody to be close to Jesus, it has to be someone associated in a few of the Christ stories. 
And so I thought about Judas, but I think, you know, the racial implications of portraying Judas as like the one black character in many of the Bible stories would probably be pretty bad. So I don't think I'm going to guess that, although it seems like, you know, Assassin 33 AD seems like the type of movie where like, hey, surprise, it's Judas. And that's, uh, (laughs) that's your villain. Nonetheless, that doesn't really get me anywhere closer, but there is one biblical character from the New Testament who I believe has been played by a Black actor on an occasion or two, not from any of these films, otherwise I would have gotten it hopefully correct. But in this case, I'm going to say that my guess is Pontius Pilate, or however that is pronounced, because I have heard that pronounced several different ways perks of living in the Bible Belt for youth group. Right. Yeah, I think with either of those characters that probably would have mentioned The Last Temptation of Christ, where, of course, Mm -hmm. Judas was played with a thick Brooklyn accent by Harvey Keitel. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Pontius Pilate was played by someone who is about as non-Black as it gets, David Bowie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what Jack said is correct. It is someone who, I mean, pretty much everything Mike said except for the actual name was correct. It is famously someone who is part of the Stations of the Cross and who, you know, is often depicted, although in the actual biblical account, it basically just says the Romans picked someone out of the crowd, is generally depicted as a sympathetic figure because when everyone else was sort of jeering at Jesus as he was marching to crucifixion, he helped him and picked up the cross. And as Jack said, it is someone known as Blank of Cyrene, specifically Simon of Cyrene. Oh, I've heard that before. I'm just really intrigued by the great sequel potential for Assassin 33 AD, you know, with the tagline, Jesus is back and he's pissed. Yeah. Oh yeah. To what could be somebody trying to kill Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's basic. I mean, yeah. To what Tucker was saying in terms of the villains in Assassin 33 AD are basically Arabs as a group. (laughs) Sensitive. Yes. Okay. Okay. You feel like so bad it's good movies. (laughs) <laughs> you can always tell at a glance whether they're trying to depict someone as a villain, basically, yeah. and yeah. not for good reasons. Yeah. Okay. So it's 24. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So now this is Tucker and Mike to try and steal from Jack. In April 2022, Skydance New Media announced that Amy Hedig would be developing a new Star Wars video game. This is speculated to be a revival of Project Ragtag, the Star Wars project that Hennig and prolific character actor slash video game writer Todd Stashwick toiled on for several years at Visceral Games before it was shut down by Visceral's parent company, EA. Prior to joining Visceral in 2014, Hennig was best known for her work at Naughty Dog, where she supervised the first three games in what franchise? Jack's smart move in choosing video games as a topic again. Uh, savvy play, well done. Yeah, I. He, he's gonna he's gonna go three for three here. Uh, Naughty I did, Dog. I did. I didn't last time. Mm. That's right. Okay, Naughty Dog. I mean, that is definitely. A studio I've heard of, which means that this is going to be a series that I've heard of. I don't, let's see, I'm trying to think of like where franchises would have had, you know, three games and maybe made by, you know, like a smaller studio than like an EA or, you know, like a Ubisoft, one of those, the the Activision, Ubisoft, etc. I think... Well, I, I had been thinking Red Dead Redemption, but I don't think that they had made three games before 2014. Let's see, Grand Theft Auto is not 
that's that's a different studio. I think that's Rockstar. Hmm. Mike, do you have any thoughts? No, because I, I, you know, you you mentioned Grand Theft Auto. My initial attempt here is what games have had several editions. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Red Dead Redemption. I, of course, uh, Call of Duty. I don't know. I don't. What I can't do is pin any of these to a particular what would you call it, studio maker. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's still the easiest in quotes, uh, Mm -hmm. of the three rounds. And so maybe this is guessable by naming a, um, so, so first three games of what franchise before 2014. So let's say this franchise started, let's say maybe 2008. Yeah. I'm thinking Um, around the same thing. Yeah. You know, that's, that's where I, I, I I kind of fall apart. I, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just kind I'm not in that world at all. And it's going to be only the, you know, the names you mentioned or some other, it, I, I assume this is, you know, it sounds like it's long running. I assume it's continuing franchise. Um, oh, I just had a thought. Okay. I'm pretty sure around 2012 or 2013, or maybe even 2014, but around that time was the third Batman game in the Arkham series. This is one of the few video game series that I've actually played. And I'm pretty sure the third one would have come out around that time. And that obviously would have been, that was a pretty big deal too. That's definitely the sort of thing that someone would have been known for. I don't know if that was Naughty Dog or not, but you know, like I I think Arkham is up there as an option. So you said it was called Batman Arkham? Yeah, it's the Arkham series really in the Batman games. So like if you just say Batman, there has been way more than three Batman games, but the Arkham series is typically how it's known by. Okay, but it, it, Batman IP, I assume, is kind of tightly controlled. Oh, you know uh, what? Yes, and also the question says what franchise rather than what series, so I think that's... Okay. Yep, so I think, yeah. The other thought I had was that in 2013, the game that my roommate at the time was playing a lot was one of the Assassin's Creed games, which had just come out. That might also be an EA game, really not sure but i know that like you know naughty dog would have been making well i don't know that for sure but i know that assassin's creed would have had three or more games by the time this person i'm trying to amy hennig would have left in 2014 so how do you feel about that as an option i'm not super strong on it but which answer is that assassin's Assassin's creed Creed. yeah i'm fine with that i was just trying to think through right now Mm because i mentioned call of duty Mm -hmm. and now i'm trying to think of the Office episode when they played Call of Duty, which I think was 2007. So that mm-hmm. game must have been out for a while. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm off that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm fine with your guess. Okay, then we will say Assassin's Creed. All right, very good guess. I think probably around the right era, but I believe that's a Ubisoft game. But I, I will circle back to it after Jack has had a chance to guess. Uh, yeah, Assassin's Creed was, is an Ubisoft game, the Arkham series, of which there were actually four games by the time Arkham Knight came out, but only three of those were made by the best video game studio named after a Teenage Mutant Turtle villain, Rocksteady. But this, uh, Amy Henning actually showed up in the very first Pop Solos Friendly I wrote, and she was the creator of the Uncharted series. Uh, yeah, I've never like, heard of that. I feel like there's a lot of fanboys out there who don't know that a woman is the creator of Nathan Drake. Yeah, 
Well, but, it's a good thing they don't. <laughs> it, it, it's re- it's really cool that they they picked her up to do because when she when she moved on to the Star Wars game, everybody was excited about that. Mm-hmm. Especially with Visceral. Visceral made one of my favorite series of all time, Dead Space. Hopefully that's not the next question. <laughs> and uh, could you say that name again, please? <laughs> yeah, uh, Ratchet and Clank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so her working with Visceral was really exciting, and then Visceral shut down because EA only knows how to kill its babies. And uh, it's cool that she's back on a Star Wars project. All right, but can you tie both that answer and the answer Tucker gave to Pretty Little Liars, Jack? Uh, let's see. Uncharted into Pretty Little Liars. Uh, I don't think I can, I don't know. I mean, so bo- both have had film adaptations. Un- the Uncharted film adaptation came out this year, but I can't think unless the person who was playing Chloe Frazier in Uncharted was in Pretty Little Liars. I don't think I, I can make a connection there. Yeah. So both Nathan Drake and Desmond Miles are voiced famously oh, by... Nolan, Nolan North, North, who played the father of my favorite character on Pretty Little oh. Yeah, Nolan North is is one of those old school voice actors who actually is not Garrison Keillor and is handsome enough to be an actor, <laughs> like a, a, a show up as an actor in uh, li- live action. It's the word I was searching for there for way too long. <laughs> yes. I definitely, on the, the message, Pretty Little Liars message board after his appearance, the, the four-letter acronym DILF Ooh, was used yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> That'll happen. Yeah. The no, that. Nolan happen. North shows up in the Uncharted movie. He's obviously not playing Nathan Drake because it went to Tom Holland, but he does. There's this bit where he's like, oh, yeah, I just fell out of an airplane without a parachute. And Nolan North is like, yeah, that happened to me one time. And then they just end the scene. They just walk away. <laughs> All right, so correct answer from Jack and Tucker and Jack now to try and steal from Mike. The developer of FM Radio, Edwin H. Armstrong, predicted as early as 1948 that the rise of FM would mean the death of AM broadcasting, but this has yet to come true. What 1987 regulatory event is described by Wikipedia as possibly, quote, saving AM radio? Well, the only big regulatory event that I can think of for radio would be the payola scandal, but I don't think this has anything to do with that. Oh, that was the, in the, that was in the sixth. That was way before 1987. I, there was, there is. I think, so, hang on. Sorry. Um, I, I'm not going to remember the name, but I have a feeling since this is Reagan era, that this is the same thing. That's like the, the fair news thing or whatever that like allowed Fox news to operate legally here like we're or maybe I'm misunderstanding but I think this has a lot to do with the rise of conservative talk radio and I'm trying okay. to think if I can remember the exact like thing that led to that is there something with like no, is there something with like clear skies or is that that's just the name of a radio conglomerate I think yeah. clear sky sounds familiar but yeah I don't know if I know the name of this event or you know if whether I can describe the actual event you know, enough to, to get the points for this. I just think so that there I, is, it is limited. Yeah. Cause FM modifies the frequency mm-hmm. AM modifies the amplitude. Mm-hmm. So there are limited bands, you know, there's not an infinite number of AM mm-hmm. or areas for AM stations. So it's probably some sort of regulatory event that maybe yeah. set the rules for who could get a radio station. 
but there is also the aspect of you know if because there, there's a thing like so when when trump hosted snl yeah. on during the campaign nbc had to offer that time to everybody else every other legitimate yeah. candidate and that seems like something that is maybe obliquely related to this but i don't know how to give that a name yeah no i i agree with that and hmm, i don't like i uh, If this is like a specific Supreme Court case, for example, I don't think I would have that. If it's, you know, anything other than like just a straight up description of the event that might have occurred, then maybe I could get to that. But I think like I'm describing just like its effects and not like the actual event itself. And that's where I'm struggling to get anywhere. Yeah. Given like phrasing it as regulatory event, I feel like Mm -hmm. that means there has to be an act. Yep of Congress or some sort of executive action Mm -hmm. that would cause that to happen or a distinct like memo. That's a change in policy for the FCC. Yeah. So like, did did the FCC exist? When did the FCC start existing? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like it must've been before the 80s because why would, you know, Reagan introduce, you know, more regulations rather than less. So is it like the removal of a standard, perhaps? That could be. Was a ooh, was AM radio allowed to have commercials before 1987? Oh, I don't know, but that intrigues me. Yeah, that I, would I, that would certainly help AM station or yeah. help a station exist to have. Yeah, because thinking money. of thinking of you know like the old radio shows they all had sponsors but that was like a show sponsorship rather than like an actual like you know they in the world of like you know local radio and local tv there is like supposedly a separation between sponsorships and advertisement and i have a feeling that you know like one possible guess here might be that this act was the thing that allowed am radio to have advertisement rather than just sponsorships or just opened up advertisement completely what do you think about that i think that's an excellent answer that yogesh is probably looking for a particular name for which we do not have (laughs) all right so do we want to go for hopefully description acceptable and then maybe we'll get prompted (laughs) let's try it all right so let's say that this regulatory event allowed am radio to air commercials or advertisements all right i'll keep quiet about that and pass it to mike okay this is an interesting question and I'm also, you know, when I gave my categories to Yogesh, I gave two options for the third one, and I really expected him to go the other way. Yogesh <laughs> is always surprising me. But this is this is very interesting. And it also is interesting in that this also kind of falls into sort of a, a weird gap in my life in terms of what I know about radio and the changes in radio, specifically AM radio. I don't know that this is right or wrong, but I have an educated guess based on 1987 and based on what is a characteristic of AM radio, which is at night signals travel much farther than during the day. And as a result, many stations had to sign off at sunset and then sign back on at sunrise. And that was considered to be unnecessary. Well, it was, it, was, it was very difficult for those stations to survive in small markets. And I believe what was forced 
I think 1987 is roughly the right time. And so I, I don't know that this is right, but it does match the time frame that I remember. And it does match something that was necessary for AM radio stations in the United States. I noticed that this is not actually focused on the United States, but I, that's where I think the big change was, which was authorizing nighttime broadcasting for daytime stations. That's the answer I'm locking in. All right. I've talked before a bit about the, the patterns I sometimes see, the, the horseshoe, where they start off with one answer, take a wide, wide range around other things and return to it. We've talked about the incomplete horseshoe, where they start off in the right place, go way, way, way from it, and do not circle back around to it. That's the one that hurts the most. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Tucker came right out of the gate with the correct answer. Yeah. And uh, you all, you all uh, moved past it and never came back around to it. It's called the repeal of the fairness doctrine. That's what it was, yeah. Yes, and as Tucker said, it did lead to the rise of conservative talk radio. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. I'd be interested in seeing that, uh, because, I mean, we all know that Wikipedia's answer is final on these matters, but still, I, I'll be interested in their citations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But you were looking for people to say fairness doctrine, right? Yes. And we're never going to get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could have described it, I guess, but I was not going to remember fairness doctrine, unfortunately. Right. And the fairness doctrine is often confused with the equal time rule, which is what Jack was yeah. referring to. Yeah. But I believe the equal time rule is basically still in effect. Hence why, for instance, Dr. Oz had to end his show after he announced he was going to be running for Senate. I think they right. could have just given Fetterman a show and called yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been fun. Yeah. Well, like when, when, uh, NBC pulled Law and Order episodes when Fred Thompson was running for president. I was like, they could just, you know, make new episodes with every candidate playing the district attorney. (laughs) (laughs) But all right, Mike and Jack to try and steal from Tucker. So just like I did with Jenna two episodes ago for Tucker, I'm going to simplify the task of writing about a wide spectrum of music by choosing a specific angle and just going with it. In this case, I'm going to draw from the AV Club's AV Undercover series. Late lamented. All right, so let's start with my all-time favorite AV Undercover video, in which they might be giants, ask several AV Club staffers to join them in a raucous, upbeat, yet presumably non-alcohol-fueled rendition of what 1997 song? This version of the song does not open with a Pete Postlethwaite monologue taken from Brassed Off. So, I think it's not, so rendition, I have an idea. I remember... This particular song that was popular in the late 90s has a person with a, I don't know exactly what Pete Postlewaite's accent is, but somebody with a brogue was saying something like, I thought that music mattered. And well, I, so I know Pete Postlewaite, the way, way you would know Pete Postlewaite, do you know the actor? Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. Well, this is, sorry, I'm, I'm just kind of monologuing here to get to. So it goes from that, and then it goes, we'll be winning, when we'll singing, I get knocked down, but I get up again. So I believe this is going to be Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba. Okay. Uh, I don't know anything about the Undercover series, but just going off of the uh, Postlewaite monologue and the extended track of Tub Thumping has somebody in an accent saying about 15 seconds of a monologue. Okay. Ah, okay. And then... Presumably non-alcohol fuel rendition, I think, is a, a sort of arrow because of all the drinking in the lyrics of the song. Yeah. Um, and I can place that to a point in my life. 97 sounds about right. So I'm, I'm happy with your answer. 
Yeah, we'll lock in Tub Thumping. All right, Tub Thumping from the album Tub Thumper, confusingly enough, is the correct <laughs> answer. All right. Nice to uh, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Hey, because I, was, like, I, I, was, I was thinking, of the, the thing I was thinking of was flagpole sit-up, which was done in some popular, what do they call them? Lip uh, It was a yeah, famous it was a, it was a lip. lip. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Lip right. Yeah, but I think maybe, God, maybe the first is... popular lipped up video from the, the staff of some website. Yeah. All right. So we'll finish out the round now with, oh, and yeah, I think in episode 28, I referenced Jeremiah Clark, whose most famous composition, Trumpet Voluntary, shows up in many places, including being sampled right at the end as it fades out in tub thumping. Mm. All right. Uh, Tucker and Mike, to trail from Jack and finish out this not all that hard round, which has proven to be maybe a little not, not all that hard. <laughs> <laughs> 1971's Controlled Substances Act decreed that controlled substances in the U.S. would be classified by schedule. Schedule 3 includes stanozolol, metandienone, oxandrolone, and all other types of what? Okay. Tucker, I have some knowledge here. Oh, thank God, because I have none. Uh (laughs) Oh, okay. I don't know how specific we need to be, but stanozolol is a steroid, and I want to say it's an anabolic steroid. Uh, okay. And I believe oxandrolone is also, steroid is, is too unspecific, unspecific. There are a lot of steroids, a lot of different chemical compounds that could be classified as steroids. But mm. stanozolol specifically is a banned or controlled, I should say, controlled substance because athletes, horses, or both. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, that's how I know it. I don't think steroid is, is, a, is a, a proper enough answer. I would say anabolic steroids. All right. Yeah, I don't really know these that well. I don't think that the ones listed are the famous baseball steroids, but I think that nonetheless, like if you know one for sure, then let's just go along those lines and I'll trust your judgment. I think that you, uh, you know, like are on the right track, if nothing else with, you know, going with anabolic specifically, but if it's also, you know, just steroids, then, you know, at least yeah, it, more or less there. Well, another thing, yeah, I mean, kind of a chemical cheat is to look at the suffix of the drug mm-hmm. and you notice own and own like testosterone mm-hmm. or yeah. OL, which is like estradiol. It's a generally mm-hmm. an indication of the chemical structure or chemical class of the, so but stenozolol, although I can't say it, that I know that I've seen. Oh, another, well, an example, I think the one that Mark McGuire had in his locker was called androstendione. And that's... Yes, yeah, he had andro, you know, yeah. So, yeah, people say andro, but, it, you, mm-hmm. you know, you get all these syllables kind of uh, yeah, yeah. together and they, <laughs> they all kind of make a jingle for you. So I would say these are anabolic steroids. Yep. I say let's go with that then. All right. We're locking that in. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of clue in, in plain sight there in the middle of oxandrolone, andro, these are all like androgens, basic, or, you know, attempts to synthesize androgens, right? Mm-hmm. So they're anabolic steroids and all anabolic steroids by definition are classified as schedule three drugs. They don't differentiate between any of them. Okay. So I believe at the end of that round, the score is going to be Mike in the lead with 9.1, followed by Jack at 5.1 and Tucker at 4.0. I'll take this time to lay down a quick note that the controlled substance theme that I asked for is because I work in a lab that deals with controlled substances a lot. It has nothing to do with any sort of recreational use. It is purely a professional topic. 
All right. Yeah. I should probably just go ahead and block out four hours for these reunion episodes with all the, yeah. the extra reminiscing. Yeah. We're, we're too friendly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, were we the first people to start doing the locked in thing? I don't know about that. I took that terminology from Trivial Warfare. Okay. Um, so yeah, they were doing it first, but yeah. So I did, I did have, I do have an MBA assignment that was due at five and I made sure to turn it in last night because I <laughs> yeah, kind of figured this would run a little long. I laid down a quick, I laid down a quick note saying that my, the latest theme that was asked of me is purely professional. <laughs> I had a conversation with my wife earlier today. She said, oh, how long is this going to go? I said, oh, about four hours. And she said, so you're going to win money? I said, no. <laughs> then why are you doing this? <laughs> Just the adoration of Quizzers Worldwide. And that in and of itself is money. Yes. We have listeners as far away as Mexico, by which I mean my... Yeah. <laughs> which I mean my... <laughs> pa- patrons as far away as Mexico. Yes. I mean, I, I, think she, I think she's taking this down as future evidence for the court case. <laughs> I think, yeah, Jack's going to be called to testify in that. (laughs) (laughs) We're all ready to proceed into the only somewhat hard round. All right. Tucker and Jack to steal from Mike to lead off this round and maybe resolve a mystery from the previous one. Who knows? All right. (laughs) Tucker and Jack. Pierre Menard is the title author of the Quixote in one of Jorge Luis Borges' beautifully constructed ficciones. Pierre Bernard, on the other hand, was a graphic designer who worked at Late Night with Conan O'Brien and other Conan O'Brien TV shows. Both men are known for immersing themselves in fictional worlds. Only the latter, however, became famous for his passionately angry yet oddly monotonous monologues about niche topics. Mr. Bernard delivered these rants while simultaneously performing an action best described by what nine-letter gerund? I'm familiar with Pierre Bernard. Mm-hmm. At least the 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 Conan stuff that they put on YouTube. Mm-hmm. No, he... I haven't really watched enough Conan to like know him really well. Yeah, and so I don't think I know Pierre Bernard besides like having heard his name. So, so I know there's there's the one where he collects mannequins. Okay, but that's a that's a offsite sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I have a vague recollection that he would have the mon- like he would monologue while sitting in a recliner, but I don't think reclining has enough letters in it. Yeah, I, it yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think like, is this someone who like the segment was titled like the blanking, you know, ranter or whatever it might be, or like the you know the blanking critic. Reclining uh, has nine letters in it. Yeah. Okay, because the, the one I came up with was stripping. So like, yeah, and that's just like a very uninformed guess. So I have a feeling that like, if you have a memory of a recliner, then that's a lot yeah, better. Like, because it's, it's not a like some of the on-site stuff they do with him. They're just basically making fun of him the whole time. But I think mm-hmm. he has some stuff where they just like bring a lazy boy out and he's sitting in a recliner and then he's just ranting about whatever he already won't. Yeah, reclining has nine letters. I think that's cool. yeah. about the you best we're going to do. some sort of knowledge here? I like it. Let's do it. All right, we'll lock in reclining. I tell people in you know that info sheet that you know you're you're you can't consult outside resources, but you're allowed to have a blank paper and writing implement with you. And Jack Jack proves why that's useful <laughs> because it enabled him to actually write down the word reclining and count the number of letters. And yeah. uh, 
it's, yeah, it's kind of sad when my my sole hope is Jack can't spell reclining. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the see the trick is reclining doesn't have repeating letters in it. So there's repeating letters in it. I have no idea what's going on. I couldn't spell colander right to save my life. Yeah, your other hope was that Jack couldn't count. That would be the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I still, uh, it, it doesn't have nine letters. I have still got a chance. <laughs> is his theme counting? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the most challenging thing. Yeah. But yes, I, I have definitely been storing away Pierre Menard's Recliner of Rage or Pierre Bernard, author of the Quixote, as titles to use for something at some point. <laughs> All right. Mike and Jack now to potentially steal from Tucker. All right, AV undercover time again, now with a Proustian twist. I like the term that Daryl coined in like episode 34 of Proustian questions for ones that involve my own personal history. <laughs> so when I attended the Oscar ceremony in 2008, I was in physical proximity to many celebrities, but the only one I actually exchanged words with was what singer-songwriter who joined his frequent collaborator Marketa Irglova and others to cover Neutral Milk Hotel's Two-Headed Boy for AV undercover in 2010. This man's other movie connections include playing guitarist Outspan Foster in the 1991 cult classic, The Commitments. All right, there's a lot of nouns in here that I'm only passingly familiar with. <laughs> the only Neutral Milk Hotel song I know is the one off of the uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World soundtrack. What is that? Anthem for a 17-year-old? I don't think that's the actual title. Oh, that's, that's Broken Social Scene. Oh, yeah, that's broke. So I have no idea what's going on at all. Okay. Uh, well, and shout out to the namesake of Neutral Milk Hotel, the all-star Neutral Milk Hotel. Now they're, uh, what is it, Neutral Chaotic? No, they changed their name. But a couple of them have been guests on this podcast, of course. So I know the song Two-Headed Boy. I don't know the cover, and I don't know the collaborator of Marqueta Irnova. All right. There doesn't seem to be good inroads there. So let's think about the Oscar ceremony in 2008. So there'd be a okay. reason why a singer-songwriter would be at the Oscar ceremony. If the Oscar ceremony was in 2008, that means it was a movie from 2007. So can we think of best original song nominees from 2007? 2007, the best picture, I believe, was No Country for Old Men. No, uh, didn't have a best original song in that. I want to say I I get years mixed up. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I could. I can't tell you years for for much. But none of the movies I'm thinking of would be known for original song. But I have seen the commitments, and the commitments. The cast was mostly Irish, young Irish performers in their twenties. There was that movie and, once. Was that in 2007? I thought there was an adaptation, so it wouldn't... No, when they make adaptations of musicals, they put in a new song just so they can get Best Original Song nominations. What's funny is that I can... There are three female characters in the commitments. Angelique Ball, um, and then the brunette, and then the redhead. I'd have better... Probably have a better chance pulling the... If I thought about it, the actresses but it does specifically say his it says a male character also this man right and so you had the guy who played rabbit and i don't think of his face 
the guitarist. The guitarist, hmm. Okay, you know, based on the cast of The Commitments, the movie was set in Dublin, I believe all of the actors were Irish. I could be wrong about that, but it's, that's the way I'm going. An Irish male singer, songwriter, who joined us frequently. I have no names, but I think, I think this is, and we're probably just setting Tucker up here, but like it's already been said, I think this is from once. Okay. I think, you know, based on Tucker's expression, I think he's ready to slam the ball. So Outspan Foster. We're just, okay. we're just playing into our, hey, we, we know what we're talking about. We just don't know the name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're just really I, bringing that right, home. Right. And I, I'm, 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 so there was Jimmy the Lips, who was an older guy, the trumpet player, not the guitarist. Guitarist. So there was the, 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 the temperamental singer who was a slob, but had a great voice. There was Rabbit, who was a manager. And then there were these young guys, and one of them was a guitarist. Oh, boy. Rats. Now, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to uh, try to think of an Irish singer-songwriter. Jack, you have nothing? Yeah, I, I think it's the guy from Once, but I couldn't tell you his name. Yeah. This is going to be one of those where, you know, after... Tucker tells us I'm going to be, oh yeah, of course. But the thing is, I'm not linking him between the commitments in 91 and a, a musical career. And once I don't know anything about, and, and I really just wish I could summon the likely name of an Irish singer-songwriter who collaborates, who would be likely to do Two-Headed Boy. So that's an acoustic, that's an acoustic guitarist, probably. Yes. This is totally wrong. I know it's wrong. I'm just going to shout out his name because he's an Irish singer-songwriter that I like, Luca Bloom. I'm fine with that. That's what you're locking in? Yeah. All right, yeah. Of course, you should You should also remember that, of course, the entire cast of The Commitments was Black because, you know, they were from Northern Dublin. Northern Dubliners are the Blacks of Dublin. Dubliners That's are right. the Blacks That's of right. Ireland. And the yes. Irish are the Blacks of Europe. I'll say in my bad book, say, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. That's, that's more Scottish, isn't it? <laughs> can't, can't, can't do it. <laughs> All right, but uh, enough, enough cultural appropriation. Let's let Tucker finish this out. <laughs> um, well, good news is uh, you guys were on the right track. Marketa Erglova is the female lead of Once and the male lead of Once, who is a frequent collaborator, is Glenn Hansard. Yeah, I, I think they, yeah. Okay, no, I wasn't going to come up with that. Almost there, boys. That's what we are. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it is an indication of my bias that I remember the the gorgeous women and the commitments better than the men. (laughs) But yeah, so so you were, yeah, basically, I mean, once, yeah, the reason they were at the ceremony was because they won Best Original Song for Falling Slowly from Once, which was then adapted into a, the musical is based on the movie, not the other way Mm -hmm. around. Yeah, and he was in a relationship with Marketa Irglova, despite their fairly large age difference. But even after that ended, they continued as musical collaborators in a group called Swell Season, which was what came to AV Undercover to cover Two-Headed Boy. And I think the, the actress you were trying to think of, Brana Gallagher, actually has a small role in Pulp Fiction, along with That's right. Eric, Eric Stoltz, who you were <laughs> in the previous episode attempting to come up with. She actually right. wears a T-shirt of The Frames, which is an Irish band fronted by Glenn Hansard. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. She's she's in the scene with uh, Roseanne Arquette, isn't she? The, the, I the, think so. The the, 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 the hypo- yes, the hypodermic one. Yeah. Yes. Right. 
Yes. That's right. And then and then the brunette is Natalie something. No, I think I think Bronna Gallagher is brunette. I don't know who the other. Well, then there, there, there's a there's a third actress who ends up dating Rabbit at the end, uh, and I, I I don't remember the actress's name. Wait, wait. I was think, I was thinking that she was she might have been in a movie that you've cited on your podcast. I was thinking of the craze, but I don't think she was in the craze. Hmm. Anyway. No, Ang- Angelique Ball was in. No, Angelique Ball was. I'm sorry, Angelique Ball was in the Brenda Gleason movie, the 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 the, um, the the General. Was it called the General? Oh, he, he was in a movie called The General. John Borman made. Um, mm, right, yes. and Angelique Ball is in that from the Commitments. Okay, sorry, I, I do this. All right, then. If only Irish cinema were one of your categories. Right, right. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> you would you would have just. I, I would have given you all of my knowledge right there. That's it. Okay, Tucker and Mike to try and steal from Jack. The 2016 puzzler, The Witness, is the second and second most famous video game designed by what notoriously perfectionist new media auteur and pioneer of indie game development? Oh, see. How many video game auteurs that kind of fit into new media do I know? I think the second most famous video game, which means the first one must be very famous, at the very least, like enough where it's like, if I hear that person's name, I'll be like, oh, okay, that's the person who made blank. So I don't know, maybe it's the person who made Portal, because that's also a puzzler, but I don't really know who made Portal. And the only video game person who is a new media auteur and is also perfectionist is Hideo Kojima. I don't know if that's right at all, but that is a person who fits those category labels. Once again, you've got one more name. <laughs> on yeah. your list than I have on mine. I mean, I'm, I'm just struggling to think about video games that are puzzlers. I think I'm thinking back to like Myst. That mm-hmm. kind of idea. Uh, but uh, I mean, if you have a name and that is... Who developed Myst though? I want to say that like, it, uh, like originally when that came out, it was like, you know, this person's Myst. I could be wrong, but... I don't remember that at all. I never did play okay. it. And, and that's the thing is I am trying to think notoriously perfectionist as though that could have bled over outside of video games, but I, I don't see how yeah. I don't. I, so, so if you have a name, feel free to use it. Yeah, sure. We'll go with, because I can't come up with any other name that fits this right now, even though I'm sure I'll know the more, uh, the most famous game. We'll say Hideo Kojima. Decent guess, but not correct. Jack? It's not Hideo Kojima, who also did not just kill Shinzo Abe. As some people, like I think Russian news thing, put up a, a picture of Hideo Kojima as as the assassin. But this, the witness, actually is probably my. It's definitely a top five game for me of all time, and it's the kind of game that after I played it, I wished I could have pushed a button on the side of my head and reset all knowledge of it, so I could play it again. The first game, which I think you're referring to, is Braid. So this is blue. Yeah, someone whose puzzle-making philosophy has actually been a, a bit of an influence on how I write questions for this podcast, Jonathan Blow. The Witness is a all-time game. You do not have to be into video games to like it. It is, if you have the capability to play it, play it. Yeah. Because it is, it is outstanding. That's the sort of game that I'll normally play. Like, I'll pick one up every, you know, couple of years or so because I feel like these are fun, but... Yeah, I will uh, keep an eye out for the witness then. I'm actually, I'm actually probably at the point where it's been six years since I played it, so I've probably <laughs> forgotten enough about it that I could pick it up again and play it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the name of the company he formed to make the witness? 
no, I don't because you know, with these auteurs, it's so much about them. <laughs> you know, like obviously he didn't make the game himself. Like he wasn't by himself when he made it, but when you're I mean, that's the problem with any auteur theory, right? Is you just lock yourself onto the director. So I don't I don't remember the company, no. Yeah. What was, I, what was the name of the first game? Braid. Okay, thanks. Yeah. To form the second one, yeah, he formed the company Tecla. I, I learned that while researching this question. I didn't just know it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and again, as a someone with a master's in film studies, I have to point out the, the original con- oh, yeah. or, yes, the uh, the original conception of the auteur theory was that it was actually someone who didn't have control over the aspects of production and had such a strong personality as a filmmaker, they were able to exert it even within a studio system that took control away from them. But of course, that term has evolved in meaning to mean virtually the opposite of that. I think there's even a part in The Witness where you can unlock a scene from an old Tarkovsky movie and it just plays it. <laughs> mm, interesting. I'm in. <laughs> okay, Tucker and Jack to try and steal from Mike. The years 1926 and 1927 marked the birth of the three radio networks, NBC Red, NBC Blue, and CBS, that would eventually evolve into the big three broadcast TV networks, respectively NBC, ABC, and CBS. During the golden age of radio, however, they were joined by what fourth major network, founded in 1934? At its peak in the 1950s, this network had nearly three times as many AM radio affiliate stations as any competitor. Among its most famous programs were The Lone Ranger, The Shadow, and The Adventures of Superman. Oof. Uh, I've heard of this at some point. I mean, I'm going to... There's no way that the fourth major radio network in the 50s was also Dumont, was it? Yeah, it might have... I'm trying Maybe, to... Like that, I want to say that, but that might, that might actually be what I'm thinking about, and I haven't heard about the fourth. Yeah, I mean, I've I just think about the that... old TV station that. Yeah, I just like I know I know a lot more about like classic TV than classic radio. So, let's see, who else could it have been? I guess, like, I guess, like RKO maybe as a possibility. They do um, have a radio broadcast as their logo. Yeah, that seems a little too easy. That's a meta game. Yeah. So 50s. Okay. I don't, hmm. I'm trying to think if there was. What's the name of the the fourth TV station? Dumont. Dumont. And I don't think the Lone Ranger or the Adventures of Superman TV shows ended up airing on Dumont after that. I don't know if there would have been separation of IP between, you know, the two mediums there, but. Telstar was a satellite, right? Yeah. It certainly wasn't satellite radio back then. Yeah, because <laughs> I want to say it's something that sounds like it, it's not it's not a initialism like NBC or CBS. It's it's okay. something where it, I think I'm pretty sure it is some sort of word slash name. Okay, like yep. Mount sounds fine. I want to say it's something like Telstar or like Comstar, but I think I'm just putting okay. together various prefix, various affixes, and yeah. <laughs> trying to generate mm-hmm. some sort of recollection of what this is. Yeah, I uh, I just don't know if I'm going to get any closer on this than like my initial thoughts here. And, you know, I think that like, you know, my movies TV thing is, you know, potentially giving me some bias in one direction. But so it's also probably our best in. It's possible. Yeah. So let's say, let's see here. My guess of the two of them is that like, because RKO did like a lot of movies that they probably wouldn't, they probably wouldn't need that AM radio as much as somebody like Dumont would that was trying to get into television. Like there's a reason that AM radio and television in the early days were so linked. So 
of those two, I would guess Dumont. You might also be on the right track with like the Comstar thinking though, where it's like a word, like and not, you know, like the initialism and it's something different. Some sort of affix salad. Yeah. But I think rather than trying to put together six random letters, <laughs> despite the other theme mm-hmm. that Mike has, I think we're probably just best off going for Dumont. And All right. Uh, if they did that. Yeah, let's lock in Dumont then. All right, I see why you guessed. I kind of predicted that might be a guess that would be offered. Yeah, good logic, but not correct. Mike? Interesting, because that was where my mind went as well. I am old, but I'm not that old. (laughs) Um, And, you know, fourth network, my mind went to Dumont, Dumont. And I was listening to the two of you trying to find any holes in your reasoning, and it all sound to me. I do associate RKO with movies, although as one of you pointed out, it does show an antenna on the logo. And I think that the R stands for radio and RKO. But the thing is that I don't have any specific knowledge of a fourth dominant network in the 50s. It's the sort of thing that I probably have glanced across just by, you know, I've I've seen an old radio guide with the stations listed that might've shown some affiliations. I might've kind of happened upon it there. Oh, oh, now, okay, wait, okay. Now something just clicked with me. And this is, okay, no, a different, uh, so I'm gonna go a different direction. So they just kind of click because when I started listening to AM radio, centuries ago, there was a fourth network at that time, and that was called the Mutual Broadcasting System. And unlike RKO, I know Mutual was a, was a, uh, was a radio network. I know it was a, existed in the 70s. So if it was at its peak in the 50s, it was probably gasping 20 years later. And that's what I'm going to go with is Mutual. Okay, yeah. So RKO, yeah, I think the full thing is Radio Keith Orpheum. I think I want to say it was absorbed into Desilu because I, I feel like because Lucille Ball like started off as an RKO contract player and ended up buying the studio that she had started out with. And then I think Desilu was incorporated into Paramount. RKO oddly was revived by Dina Merrill and her husband using the money she had inherited from her mother, Marjorie Merriweather Post. <laughs> <laughs> Well done. You got it in. (laughs) After a very long hiatus, the Marjorie Merriweather Post references have returned. Um, (laughs) All right. So Mutual was in the, I think the 50s was taken or the the majority stake was bought by a company that was controlled by a man named Alexander Guterma, who was a notorious stock manipulator who ended up going to prison, both for sort of insider trading and for accepting money from Rafael Trujillo who is an answer who all three of you missed on your previous episode. So, um, (laughs) but um, yeah, so a nice, uh, nice nostalgic uh, trip there and mutual broadcasting system is correct. Hey, nice job, Mike. Well done, Mike. I I actually think I could be wrong and Yogesh might know this. I think that Larry King might've been one of the mutual broadcasting system late night people when he was in radio. That does ring a bell. I feel like in my research, I came across someone who like started there who I had never heard of before, but was apparently a big name. And then they kind of mentioned, I think Larry King was like his replacement or something or some, something like that. Yeah. So that does ring a bell, although I couldn't swear to it. All right. So Mike and Jack now to try and steal from Tucker. 
Okay, in season two of 24, a certain CTU head learned he had been exposed to a lethal level of radiation poisoning and chose to carry out a suicide mission, piloting a plane bearing a nuclear bomb into the Mojave Desert. As a result, he died a hero. But he never got to see which 11 seed make a Cinderella run to the Final Four in the 2006 NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament. Jack, I bet you have a lot to say about this. I mean... (laughs) This is you and me, right, Jack? Yeah, this is me and you. I mean, I was at least alive during this one. (laughs) There was 2006 and 11 seed. Was that when George Mason made their run? That, well... So there were two Cinderella's around the same time. George Mason was a one-off and then Butler, I think in consecutive tournaments got to the final four, but Butler I'm pretty sure was not a double digit seed. I want to say Butler was like an eight. I think Butler was an eight. And George Mason, yes, they stood out as, I don't know, Oh, okay. And I just realized this this clue has a first sentence that I wasn't even looking at. And I'm sorry, I'm starting to believe that maybe it's relevant to the answer that is meaning that it's in the name of a person, you know, like George Mason. Which, I think that's I think that's what's going again, on. <laughs> I, I think you're right. So Jack has gotten, I think Jack's got our answer for us. Yeah, we'll lock in George Mason. All right. Is that correct, Tucker? Yo, gosh, why do you hate me? <laughs> <laughs> Um, for those of you who are listening and don't know who my favorite basketball team is, I am uh, a lifelong fan of the Yukon Huskies, who moved uh, <laughs> to George Mason in the Elite Eight in 2006 in Washington, D.C., in a game that a 12-year-old Tucker was in attendance at. And there were definitely no tears on the way home. Uh, also, Xander Berkeley's character of 24, who is named George Mason. So, yes. Oh, great, great. I always yeah. like Xander Berkeley. Okay, yeah, I, I actually, I mean, well, I, I guess I do recall you posting something recently about UConn, but I didn't know about their 2006 history. But yeah, I mean, when I was on one of the episodes of Beat My Guest, I was on, AJ Mass asked me multiple questions, I think once about Dave Winfield and one about Paul Molitor. And I was like, oh, members of the 1992 Toronto Blue Jays, why do you hate me? <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I'm sorry, Tucker, as a fan of perhaps the finest NCAA program never to win a title. I don't want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have yep. a chance. It's either, it's, it's either Illinois or Purdue. And I think, you know, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. I have no dog in this fight. You guys go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You never know. There could have been a CTU head named Butler. Possible. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was possible. But I, <laughs> you see, like, I know about best, like, I don't know, like, I read ESPN, like, so, like, if it has happened while I was alive, I'd probably cognizant of it. What would be fun if there was a CTU head named, you know, St. Loyola of Ignatius. For, <laughs> yeah. I did that backwards. I don't know. <laughs> Loyola, Chicago. They're an 11 seed. They made the final four. Whatever. Steven Gonzaga. <laughs> it was actually, you don't remember the famous, the notorious sister, Jean, I'm sorry, for yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Jack Bauer facing off against Virginia Commonwealth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a character named Alberta Green, which I'm pretty sure was taken from like a, a public interest slogan in Alberta. It used to be posted, you know, billboard saying, keep Alberta green. Yeah, then, yeah. It, it was mostly Canadian producers on that show. So it wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Oh, wow. That's just like a dark reflect, like a dark commentary from Canadians on us then, huh? Sure is. 
All right. Uh, yeah. And I mean, well, Kiefer Sutherland also from Canada. And mm-hmm. actually, yeah, I think Sarah Clark, who played Nina, was is she also Canadian? Yeah. I don't know, but she is Xander Berkeley's wife in real life. So, hey, bringing it all back oh, to the question. True. Wow. Mm-hmm. Actually, now that I think about it, the entire Bauer family, uh, Leslie Hope, Kiefer Sutherland and Alicia Cuthbert, they're all Canadian. Okay, so Tucker and Mike now try and steal from Jack. Narcan and Evzio are among the brand names under which life-saving drug is distributed. I mean, well, Narcan is um, like when you overdose. Again, yeah. So, sorry to Jack. I. Uh, oh, good. Okay, you have I, to. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I actually, my graduate thesis was on, in part on opiates, morphine, and... Narcan is the trade name for naloxone, which is the antagonist for opioid receptors that blocks the effects of heroin and other opiates. So if you're okay with that, we will lock in naloxone. Yeah, Yogesh, our answer is what Mike said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the injectors for it, there was a big deal about kind of the price hiking of that, of which, of course, Martin Shkreli came out in favor of price hiking, believe it or not. Oh, wow. <laughs> Doesn't sound like him. <laughs> but yes, this was actually a, a case in my marketing strategy class last semester. <laughs> um, do, do you, any of you play OQL, not, not the solos, but the team? Okay. This question was actually in last week's match flipped around. So it gave Naloxone and asked for the trade name, Narcan. Huh. Oh, I had no idea. All right. Yeah, I saw uh, that last week, so I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tucker and Jack to try and steal from Mike. Currently home to the Springfield Lucky Horseshoes, a team name that pretty much only makes sense if you're from Springfield and thus know what a horseshoe is in Springfield. The most prominent baseball stadium in my hometown of Springfield, Illinois, is named for what native son inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1976? It may or may not surprise you to learn that he was neither the first woman of color nor the first openly LGBT woman to host Jeopardy. Okay, so what's... Oh, uh, Robin Roberts. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, okay, so yeah, I was trying to think, like, I need the baseball clue for this, but she would have been the first woman of color, I guess, and I did not know she was openly LGBT, but yeah, she did host in the run of guest hosts. Robin Roberts would have been inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame around 1976, so I'll just go with that. (laughs) I have no... I see no holes in the logic. Okay, we will lock in Robin Roberts. All right, yeah, so Robin Roberts, the television journalist, and Robin Roberts, the Philadelphia Phillies pitcher, share a first and last name. Only the latter is from Springfield, one of the more famous people to be born and grow up there, along with Marjorie Merriweather Post. <laughs> I, it's a bit humbling when the category, I mean, a question comes in my specialty category, and one of the Steelers gets it before I can think of an answer. <laughs> well, with, like, the, oh, with the thanks, cavalcade. Tucker, that's it, yeah. <laughs> with the cavalcade of hosts, you just kind of like run through the list, right? Yeah. Right, 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 right. It's been a while since then. I think I know when it happened, I think a lot of people had that list of guest hosts in their mind. It's been a while, though. It's kind of dropped mm-hmm. out of memory. But all right. No, we're making yeah, there's the- there's some real stinkers on there when it comes down to it. What, Dr. Ross? I was going to say, and, and future senators? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. The stinkers. That's the future senator. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Probably. Yeah. I mean, you say that as a joke and then, yeah. <laughs> He could win 70% of the vote in Wisconsin right now. Mm-hmm. Well, not right now after he retired. 
But yeah, so far, every single question in this round has been answered and we're making pretty good time. So let's, let's see if the streak continues with Mike and Jack to try and steal from Tucker. Okay. I couldn't stop laughing while reading the summary of the upcoming drama film Lola James about a young lower working class woman in middle America dealing with drug addiction, a burnout boyfriend, and an abusive mother while attempting to care for her indigo child younger brother. Not because I find the subject matter inherently funny, but because this poverty porn is written and co-directed by its star, Nicola Peltz, who grew up the super wealthy daughter of an actual billionaire. Indeed, one might argue that Ms. Peltz has a history of being in projects where she doesn't belong. She played Katara in The Last Airbender, despite not looking the least bit Asian, and she had a starring role in what highest-grossing Hollywood film of 2014, despite not appearing in any previous entries in its franchise. All right, so the highest-grossing Hollywood movie of 2014, eight years ago. That's too far away for, like, the Avengers, right? Well, okay. 2014 franchise is going to be either Star Wars or, oh, yeah. or as you say, uh, um, Marvel or maybe Fast and Furious. Yeah, that um, could be. Because there was, at the beginning of Endgame, Scott Lang goes and sees Cassie, and that's a new actress for her since it's a five-year time skip. But I don't think that was in 2014. I think that was later. I'm trying to think what other... But yeah, you, I mean, for the highest grossing movies of the 2010s, it's going to be a Star Wars. It's going to be a... It's going to be a Star Wars. It's going to be an Avengers. It's going to be a Fast or Furious, right? I think so. There's nothing else that would interrupt that because Avatar was in the aughts, right? Yeah, Avatar was 09. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. And Avatar is not a franchise. Not well. I guess it will be. We got seven on, on deck, apparently. <laughs> right, right. And so not appearing in any previous entries in its franchise. So this is a long running by 2014. It's been it's been going for a while. Yeah. So but, I'm trying to think like Rogue One. Rogue One was eight years ago about. You know, the thing, I am not a Star Wars fanboy, despite being right in the demographic when the first one came out. Yeah. You know, and, all, all my friends were going to Star Wars and I'm saying, I want to see Annie Hall again. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> you see how that worked out. But um, I'm trying to think what, uh, who she might have been in Rogue One or in any of the Star Wars movies. Because if it's any of the, the Skywalker saga ones, I mean, she would have just been like in the background. But when you get to Rogue One, which I so do think did- was probably the highest, highest grossing movie or whatever year it was in. Unless it was up against a MCU movie, but um, again, I'm bad with I'm bad with years in terms of like what happened in this particular year. Yeah, that's the thing is I'm I'm trying to go eight years ago. When did Adam Driver show up in the Star Wars franchise? Well, he was in Force Awakens, which I think was before 2014. Was it okay? Or it was 2015? Again, I am not. This is the I'm, real bad spot in my trivia right. things. No way, right? I, I could, things happen. I, I my eyes glaze over with all these franchises, and the the one thing I can remember is that I was just because of my circumstances at Christmas every odd year I happened to go to the theater to watch another Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they may have been on odd years, um, but if Force Awakens was fifteen, Rogue One would have been fourteen. So do we feel more confident in Star Wars as the franchise or in Avengers as the franchise? 
So I, I know the MCU pretty well. I couldn't tell okay. you like specific actress names for the most part. Mm-hmm. Is else? No, twenty Ant Man and the Wasp was in twenty fourteen. I'm just trying to think about new, and for this level of difficulty, though, there may not be like relevant or major characters in the MCU. They could just be one offs. Mm-hmm. It's like Ghost and Ant Man and the Wasp. I don't think her name was Nicola. I don't think that was Nicola Peltz. Might have been. I don't know. I just keep coming back to Rogue One. And she. Okay. I want. I, I'm thinking yeah. like maybe she was the person who played Mon Mothma. Because obviously uh, yeah, they I get the I, original Mon Mothma yeah. back. I, I I defer to you on this because I'm not not pinning years and I'm not really. I, I'm absolutely not a completist. I, I I mean, I would be giving a title at random, and I'm not even sure about which franchise to to lean toward. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I feel best about Rogue One. Fine, I'm fine with that. Then. All right, we'll lock in Rogue One. All right, I think I think in episode 33, I briefly mentioned that while Rogue so Riz Ahmed basically had was in Rogue One, which was number one at the box office in 2016. At the same time that the Hamilton mixtape, which he was also featured on, was at the top of the Billboard albums chart, which is a nice double achievement that is pretty rare. So yeah, that was from 2016, a couple of years off. So Tucker. Yeah, um, I think this was the last year before the highest-grossing movie of every year was just. Star Wars, MCU, Star Wars, MCU, 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 continual until the end of time. But 2014, I think this was a franchise that you guys touched on earlier, which is Fast and the Furious, because one of them was kind of out of nowhere, a much bigger hit than the ones that had come before it. And, you know, Fast and Furious already a big hit, but one of them really stood out. I think it made something like uh, $500 million domestic or something like that. It's just, just an absurd number. This is a series that I haven't caught up with, though, since, you know, like in this iteration of it, once Justin Lin took over. But I think the one that was the giant hit and that came out in 2014 was Fast 6. Hmm. I think the biggest hit in that franchise would have to be the one that came out right after Paul Walker died, which was Furious 7 in, ah. uh, in 2015. Um, yeah, one year off. Yeah, yeah, a uh, good guess. I think and I one think number the, off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think 2015, the biggest at the box office would have to be Force Awakens, which came out that year. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah. yeah, 2014 was a movie I think that included some pandering to China to help boost its worldwide box office. It was called Transformers: Age of Extinction. Oh, we didn't even 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 name the franchise. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's the first zero of the round, though. So. Still pretty good. Still doing pretty well. And we'll finish it out now with Tucker and Mike to try and steal from Jack. In the 100th episode of How I Met Your Mother, Neil Patrick Harris performs the elaborate musical number, Nothing Suits Me Like a Suit, while his character Barney is wooing a gorgeous bartender who hates men in suits. That bartender was played by what entertainer, best known for performing in a medium generally not classified as acting? It is somewhat surprising that she was cast as a bartender, since when she is behind a bar, her most famous physical characteristic is hidden. I've seen every episode of this TV show. I've definitely seen this one. I don't recall this specifically, but could it be Kim Kardashian, who fits all the clues here? I mean, you know, performing in a medium, you know, depending on where you want to take that is either the reality show or, well, you know, the other thing. And definitely I'd say her most famous physical characteristic is, you know, the the butt area of the body, uh, which is hidden behind a bar. And 
it could be somebody else. I don't know if they would have gotten her around that time. Let's see, the hundredth episode would have been 2008, 2009-ish. It's not unreasonable she would have been in that. I just, I, I don't recall this at all. So that's just a name I'm throwing out that might fit the clues. What do you think? I, so I've never seen an episode of How I Met Your Mother. It's and not for any specific reason, except that you know, living in Mexico, I, it's, it's kind of pick and choose what series I pick up. And that's just one that you know, I knew about. I knew about you know, Patrick Harris, but I just never saw it. I think your, your deduction is really clever. Both the, um, you know, in a medium, generally not classified as acting, which is kind of a wink. And then the physical characteristic, which, you know, you mentioned. So I think that that sounds like a really good educated guess. And since you do have some experience with the series, I'm, I'm going to trust what you say. All right. Because I really do not actually remember this part. And I know that this is a character that I'm pretty sure is only in that one episode. We will say Kardashian. That is an ingenious answer, but unfortunately not a, not a correct one. <laughs> oh, every man. time you compliment an answer, it's oh. wrong. And I like that. <laughs> he, com- get- he compliments every answer. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah right. our, <laughs> our wrong answers are the best wrong answers. <laughs> All right, Jack. Uh, Kim Kardashian does make an appearance on the show, but she only shows up on a magazine and us weekly. Well, not, it wasn't an official one. It was, it's a magazine that Marshall takes to, uh, read a magazine in the bathroom and he describes Kim Kardashian as an extremely hot woman that my wife thinks is important for some reason. <laughs> uh, but the answer to this question is a, the, the medium that she is famous for, I believe is professional wrestling and her notable characteristic are, is her legs. And I think, so I'm leading myself up here and I may say the name wrong. I think this is Stacy Keebler. So I'll lock in Stacy Keebler. Yes, the, the most the most famous Keebler who is not an elf, perhaps. <laughs> she, she is known for her uh, unusually long and shapely legs, and her entrance music was a certain ZZ Top song. Uh, a whole lot of love. No, uh, that's, that's, not even a, that's not even a ZZ Top song, is it? Um, no, I was trying to say, what, what is that song I was trying to think of? She's got legs. You were trying to say, give me some loving? Yes, no, that's, that's a different... I was going to say legs. Yeah, no, no. I was trying to make a joke by naming a different ZZ Top song, and I just realized I couldn't think of any. And then I was like, no, there's that one that's like, but a whole lot of love is in a Led Zeppelin song, and give me some love in his like Censor Davis group or something. Um, Oh, you know, it's give me. Never so close. No, no. Okay. Yeah. Give me. Uh, Yeah. Well, according according to uh, Barney, she's got legs was originally she's got eggs and was written about his mother. So, okay then. <laughs> Can't confirm. All right. So I. So will, you, I, um, is this is this another series I should put on my short list? All right. So, <laughs> how I met your mother. There's reasons not to like it. It's kind of got it. It it lines up right for me because they do a lot of interesting stuff because they're they're technically single camera but they film like a multi camera because they don't film with a live audience. They just laugh track everything in. So they can do some real weird stuff in terms of like the look of a multi-camera sitcom and then not do that. Mm -hmm. And then Marshall's from Minnesota. So it speaks to me in a way that it's It's um, like your your own personal hoser hut. Yeah. (laughs) Well, not, not that. There's the other one. Hopefully, hopefully it's not an answer coming up. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so there's a lot of reasons to like it. There's a lot of, a lot of reasons not to like it. 
it's got the friends problem where they're in New York city, but there are basically no main characters of color. And it is especially Barney's kind of a misogynist. You can't really get away from that. Yeah. So it, it, I would, I would classify it as a, a, a problematic fave of mine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, mean, but I, think, I, yeah. I like it. It's a show I put on just mm-hmm. to have in the background. And sure. There's, there's high moments. There's low moments. Mm-hmm. We won't talk about the yellow face episode. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say the final season, but you're right. That is worse. That was, that was worse. So. I mean, and yeah, while I think that, you know, Kirsten Milioti who played the mother was perfect casting. Like if it had ended after three seasons with Stella as the mother, it would be remembered as one of the greatest sitcoms of all nah, time. Nah, nah, Victoria, man. Victoria was should have been. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, well, yes, but like at season three, they, they cut it off with the implication that Stella might be the mother. And if the show had been canceled, then they would have just called Stella the mother and that would have been fine, really. Yeah, it would have um, been fine. Yeah. yeah. Despite so the, pat- the fact that Lindsay Fonseca and David yeah. Henry are both strong brunettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This has been episode 37 of the How I Met Your Mother podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the actress who played Victoria was in Sequin Rays, which is the short film that the show Unreal was based on and is spectacular, oh. spectacularly good. And she gives an amazing performance. Yeah. We're a big Ashley Williams fans here. She was great. She's so good. Really good. Victoria. Victoria is just so good. So okay. Jim Gaffigan's wife on the Jim Gaffigan show. Really good in that. Yes. Not to be, there was a different Ashley Williams who was in Human Centipede. I'm fairly certain it was a different Ashley Williams. So. There's, yep. al- there's also a video game, Ashley Williams. Hey. Uh, <laughs> all right. So at the end of that round, very close scores 20.1, Mike 19.0, Tucker 23.1, Jack very much anyone's game as we head into the super hard round and the almost certainly longest ever recreational thinking episode. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. That's cutting editing. Great news, fans. <laughs> we're not trying to. We're just talking. Yeah. We're, we're, we, we see what Major League Baseball has done and we like it. <laughs> we need to get Joe West to umpire this podcast. He kicked us all out. <laughs> It's like I thought when I spent 20 minutes talking about the Monty Hall problem, that would push that one to the longest ever episode, but uh, we'll see. This is going to be the one that breaks my phone, finally. <laughs> All right, uh, Tucker and Jack to try and steal from Mike as the point values go up. So in the previous round, I don't think I said, but they were four points for a bonus and three for a steal, or four points, sorry, four points for a steal, three for a regular question, two for a bonus, but there weren't any bonuses. Now it's six points for a steal, five for a regular specialist question, three for a bonus. And we begin with Tucker and Jack to try and steal from Mike. The long-running radio dramas Suspense and Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar both aired their final episodes on September 30th of What Year, thus marking the definitive close of the so-called golden age of radio. And even though this is a super hard round, I'm not completely heartless. I will give you a one-year margin of error. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping for a hint, but I'll take a one-year margin of error. That works too. Um, so, so it's probably like oh, go ahead. early 60s? I was thinking earlier because I have a feeling this yeah. is going to coincide pretty roughly with, you know, like the rise of like network TV becoming like a major force. So I'm thinking this is probably in the 50s. But then again, you if it's- want to say like mid-50s? Close, yeah, they would, uh, but they would probably keep running though too. So maybe it's even a little later. So, okay. So I'm pretty sure Suspense was a TV show in the early days of TV also. I don't know if it was the same show that came to TV 
from the radio program or if it was just a different show that happened to have the same title. But let's see. So, okay, so definitive close of so-called golden age of radio. I'd say by like, there were probably some very popular radio programs that lasted a lot longer than we thought just because people were still used to getting those shows on radio and therefore like they continued when everything else was more or less failing or dropping off the airwaves. Mm-hmm. So this could be into the 60s. Um, That's what I'm saying. So like yeah. the these shows, if they... So definitive close means like you can't really argue about it anymore. Yeah. So I think that means we're going to get into the early 60s, where if these shows were running in the 50s, mm-hmm. you could still say, and if they're long running, they could have been. Yeah. So I'm thinking maybe like early to mid 60s at this point, I think. Maybe like... Hmm. It seems like there's a pretty good case to be made that like radio was still going strong through much of the 1950s, if not the entire decade. Now, I have a feeling that because, you know, like they're long running shows and they're both famous titles that they started maybe in the late 40s, uh, which would put like an end period of like, I don't know, 1963, 64 kind of in a good range there. Uh, And what was the original one that you said? Uh, I was said like 61, but I'm fine with going okay. like 63, 1963. Yeah. <laughs> Not assassin 63 AD. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, 20, 2163. I think we're still in the golden age of radio. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Do you want to say like 63 or 64 then? Which way? Do you I'm, I'm leaning to? more early. So I'd say 63. All right. Then let's try 1963 and we'll lock that in. All right. In, in the interest of time, I, I won't bother passing it over to Mike. It was 1962, so you're within the one year. Oh, all right. Well done, guys. All right. Mike and Jack now to try and steal from Tucker. The atmospheric Ruth Wilson vehicle, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, was the first feature film directed by what horror auteur to gain wide release, although he made it after The Black Coat's Daughter. It is scored by this man's brother Elvis and features supporting performances by Bob Balaban and Paula Prentice, both of whom co-starred with this man's father in the 1970 movie version of Catch-22. I don't know where to start with this one. I have not seen. I, I know where to start, which to me, the way I'm going to start is with Catch 22, which I, I have that's... not seen in its entirety, but I can remember a couple of, of the actors in there. Art Garfunkel was in there. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yosarian was played by Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin? Um, yeah, Alan Arkin played your Syrian. Who else is in that movie besides Garfunkel? Who did Garfunkel play? Yes, it, I haven't seen it. Okay, we won't dwell on it then. Yeah, it's directed by Mike Nichols. Okay, it's scored by this man's brother, Elvis. And then his man's father is in the 1970 movie version of Catch-22. Now, Alan Arkin's got at least one well-known son, Adam Arkin, who has directed as well as performed. It's totally reasonable that Alan Arkin has another son. I think Alan Arkin's a little, probably on the easier side for this this part of the of the podcast. That's, that is true. But if, right. if we can't name anybody else from Catch-22, which I cannot. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to run because 
I've seen glimpses of it, you know, and it, it was not a successful movie. And, and Catch-22 is one of my favorite books. So I just kind of decided to avoid the, the movie version. So Bob Balaban, Paula Printers. It's funny, I, just a little factoid came up about Paula Prentice recently. She's related to another Prentice who was briefly an actress and then ended up dying in prison. Do you know that story, Yogesh? Yes, I do. Her sister, Anne Prentice, was the star of a 60s show called, I think, Captain Nice, or she was the, the romantic uh, love interest on that show. And it turned out she was not particularly nice herself. Yeah, it was, a, what is, a, tried to, tried to have somebody murdered and went to prison and then from prison still tried to have was a husband murdered or something like that? I think she tried to have Richard Benjamin, who also appeared in Catch-22 and directed one of my favorite comedy films, My Favorite Year. I believe that uh, was the, tar- the target of her um, plot. And also was in The Last of Sheila. Uh, I'm not going to say anything more about that. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, you know, we were going to come up with Richard Benjamin as our answer, and now we can just cross that off the list. Uh, so that is my only in. I mean, I know Ruth Wilson, that is the wife of uh, Tom Hanks, correct? Yeah. I uh, so. But I don't know much about her. Uh, I don't know horror auteurs. Yeah, I, I know a fair amount about horror movies, but I don't even know what time period these are. These ones are in. And I think you're right that, I mean, if you know one actor in Catch-22, it's likely Alan Arkin. So for the super hard round, I think you are correct that that is a little too soft of an answer. But if the that's the only problem, name we have. That's the problem. The problem is that I'm, unless you want to do a lucky Garfunkel, and I, that doesn't really... Uh, and, um, nah, I, I, I'm, I would, I'm fine I, with going with Arkin at this point. I think we're kind of spinning okay. our wheels. Okay, you're right. We'll, we'll lock in Arkin. Okay, yeah. I have a distinct memory. I've never seen this clip or anything, but I remember watching the Emmys in the mid-90s when Adam Arkin, his son, was on Chicago Hope. The two of them came out to present together, and Alan Arkin said to his son, I loved you as Batman. And I was the only person in the room who laughed at that, but I still think it's a very funny joke. Uh, (laughs) All right, uh, Tucker. Okay. I've been thinking about this one for a little while. I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House and The Black Coat's Daughter are movies that are both on my list. As I normally say, I have wanted to see them and have not. But if I remember correctly, they overlap with a director I have seen a couple movies from. One that's definitely an atmospheric horror movie made by an auteur. It's called Berberian Sound Studio with Toby Jones. And I believe Bob Balaban is a supporting actor in that, although I could be wrong because it's been a little while since I've seen it. But the director of that movie, and hopefully these, but definitely that one, is Peter Strickland. And that is my answer. Okay, yeah. And by the way, I remember, yeah. So Ruth Wilson is, unless something recently happened that I don't know about, is definitely not married to Tom Hanks. <laughs> is a complete- oh, Rita Wilson. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Completely different person. But yeah, so this is someone, you know, who through his father would definitely be associated with the horror genre. But yeah, I mean, Catch-22 had a gigantic cast, really an all-star cast. People like Orson Welles were in it. Buck Henry, who wrote the screenplay, was in it. At least three members of the cast of the Bob Newhart show were in it. Jack Riley, my friendly acquaintance from USC, Pete Bonners, and of course, Bob Newhart himself. 
And so, yeah, a lot of John, young John Voight, ton of ton of uh, famous people. But yeah, this is someone who was in that, who actually, I didn't even think of this connection. He actually did co-write the screenplay for The Last of Sheila, as I mentioned in episode 23, when I also had a question about him. His father was, I think, like a, a stage performer who has the same name as his son, although his father used the first name Osgood and his son shortens it to Oz. Oh, it's Oz Perkins. Damn. Yeah. So the they act. I mean, the father here is named Anthony Perkins. His son is Oz Perkins. All right. All right. And so it's the, the psycho Anthony yes. Perkins. Yep. And so this this person was not connected to the Burberry and Sound Studio. No, I was going on a Peter Strickland thing there. That's why I was thinking Peter Strickland. And Yogesh explained why I was incorrect to do so. <laughs> so this is just an odd coincidence, but this little known dream pop band that I really like that's now defunct broadcast did the soundtrack for Barbarian Sound Studio. So I decided I would watch it and I turned it off after an hour. <laughs> I rarely really do that, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> so you could have just turned the video off and listened to the rest. You're, you're absolutely right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All right, Tucker and Mike to try and steal from Jack. The film that had the most impact on my decision to study psychology Alain René's Mon Oncle d'Amérique is built around the theories of Dr. Henri Laborie, who, despite his grand pronouncements about human behavior, was neither a psychologist nor a psychiatrist. Trained as a surgeon, he did considerable research in neurobiology, including being the first scientist to study GHB's effects on humans. He is best known in the sciences, however, for developing what drug that revolutionized psychiatry by serving as the first major antipsychotic. I'll accept either its scientific name or any of its most common brand names. I'm hoping this was going to stick to the resume theme and I could get, you know, a movie in on this. Uh... <laughs> well, I'm, this again is kind of a past life mm. kind of thing. I did study a lot of um, pharmacology in grad school. And sorry, am I stepping on your toes, Tucker? Oh, absolutely not. No, it, honestly, the more you say about this question, the better. So... Uh, it's something we kind of learned about in grad school about the early antipsychotic drugs and the problems that they caused. And my, my grad advisor was actually uh, kind of involved in studying some of these things and, and specifically their effects on dopamine systems. And there were two kind of classic drugs that came along, I want to say in the 60s, and then were found to have some significant side effects. And if I have the chronology correct, the second one to come out was haloperidol or Haldol. And the first one to come out was Thorazine. I could be wrong on that chronology, but I think that Thorazine was kind of the flag bearer for pioneer drug that developed issues and then was succeeded by successive generations. That's where I would place my bet is drug Thorazine. Cool. Sounds good to me. We'll lock in Thorazine. Okay. So yeah, I think, I think in Europe, when it was developed, it was called, or it was sold as Largactyl in the U.S., usually sold on Thorazine. Do you know its scientific name, Jack? If it doesn't, if it's not used widely today, there's no reason I would see it as a part of my job. Okay. So I believe the scientific name, let me see if I have a look. Let me, okay. Chlorpromazine. Right, right, okay. But I, I will accept Thorazine as correct. Yes. 
One of the things I love about this podcast is I can just sit back and relax on some of the science questions and I might even end up with points at the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I I, I wrote a lot of quote tales our first time around. (laughs) (laughs) I think all of my controlled substances one got stolen. <laughs> well, I'm, you guys are two for two on my college basketball ones. So, yeah. all right. So, this next question, I actually I had a different question in this space, and then I, I decided to replace it with a more Chicago centric one. And I will use that question on the next episode I tape. So, here's this question: From the Blues Brothers to the Dark Knight, some of cinema's most famous automotive chase sequences have been filmed on what multi-level Chicago street? named for a brewer and philanthropist who advocated for the Burnham plan that is hilariously divided into upper and lower drives. Oh, oh boy. Multi-level. Yeah. I haven't been to Chicago in a long time. I've been once and we didn't take a car. I think so. it, I think it's division. So like upper division and lower division. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a division street in Chicago, or I'm just flashing back to college and thinking about a street in my town. Oh, well, yeah, I was going to say, who would the brewer and philanthropist be? And Oh, yeah, it's not. Yeah, so Chicago breweries, is there anything that like, like Goose Island is Chicago, but it's got to be named for somebody Mm -hmm. who's around there. It's not going to be. Yeah, I don't think I've been in the neighborhood where this street is. I feel like I should be able to attack it from the brewery angle, but... It's funny, because I've been to the Lagunitas Brewery in Chicago, and it's actually where they filmed the scene where the Joker burns all the money. But they they stopped filming there once HD cameras came along, because trains (laughs) would go by, and on SD you could film and trains could go by, and it was fine, but in HD Mm -hmm. you couldn't do it. But it's definitely not Lagunitas, because that is from California. Okay. So let's see. I mean, it's not Bush or Miller, I don't think. And what would be, so I'm thinking like either brewery or like, what's like a thing that could be like funnily or hilariously, excuse me, described as upper or lower jaw. (laughs) I mean, like Pabst isn't Chicago, right? That's no, it's all Midwest. Oh, South. Okay. So let's see. Pabst there's it's like Schlitz. I figure it's gotta be one of the old beers. So see there's Schlitz there's well it's not old Milwaukee uh, we know that um, <laughs> upper Schlitz what up. isn't divided into upper and lower parts normally Stephen Hemisphere you know like side maybe upper side ah, no that's still there yeah. I mean Schlitz is a brewer yeah, yeah upper Schlitz and lower Schlitz isn't the pinnacle of comedy or anything so no. i have a feeling it's not that let's see the stadiums there's i doubt it's wrigley i doubt it's comiskey yeah. um any other famous chicagoites chicagoans any notable chicagoans who have been bisected at the waist <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, wow yeah this is this is the super hard Yep. <laughs> Good job pitching the difficulty of these questions. That was accurate when it comes to this one. At this point, I'm just like thinking of things that I'm just trying to think of names that would be hilariously divided into upper and lower. 
Yeah, I'm still trying to attack it from the brewery angle, but see when the I was problem in is Chicago, if Chicago's old enough that it could have been named after a brewer and that company could have gone out of business. Yeah, decades yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about the Burnham plan? I don't know it. I don't think there's any inroads there. Yeah, like I, I doubt that's like an oblique reference to Bo Burnham, which would have been my only in anyway, but I don't know what the Burnham plan is. So. Likewise. Okay, so. Like Laville, something like that, the upper level, and the name's actually <laughs> Laville, something like that. Clever. Keep rubbing my brain as if that's actually going to help here. Oh, Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I do this enough, it'll make me look good when I get it wrong. So it's not a, it's not a video podcast. Yeah, well, you know, there's an audience of three right here on the video feed. Uh, uh, I knew somebody from Illinois named Laville. So I'm, I'm going to nudge yeah. you toward... Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Under, understandably so. Let's uh, yeah. let's just lock in Laville. Sure. Okay, yeah. Mike, do you have? Uh, yeah, this, uh, this I should know this better than I do. And what's really killing me is that, you know, I went to this, this blog written by a, a very esteemed quizzer called the Wogger Box and clicked on the link for the Burnham plan. And the tab is probably open, but hidden somewhere. And, you know, my hands are here. So um, I still haven't read that page on the Burnham plan that was linked by Yogesh. But this to me, when I think about a drive in the loop of Chicago, and I, I think that the hilarious is not regarding the name, but regarding the weird geography of the streets of the loop of Chicago. The one, the name that comes to me is Wacker Drive. I'm not certain that that's correct. That's what I think of when I think of the loop, the drive that is weird. So I'm going to say Wacker Drive. Okay, yeah, the burn. Although my first instinct when talking about the Burnham plan is to make a Bo Burnham reference. Yeah, it was a name for Daniel Hudson Berman. who was a sort of architect and city planner who, even though I think he lived in the 19th century, his sort of vision for what Chicago should look like has been carried out piecemeal throughout the 20th century, including that weird division of multi-level streets, which is kind of unique to Chicago among major cities. But yeah, the one who signed kind of always made me laugh. Like when I was a kid on field trips into Chicago or even seeing it in movies or TV, the sign that said upper whacker, lower whacker. Yeah. Once once you said it, I was like, yep, that's definitely it. Yeah, that's that's pretty funny. <laughs> I've stayed I've stayed down in hotels on Wacker Drive. It's always fun to tell a taxi driver to say like 45 whacker. <laughs> All right, Mike and Jack to try and steal from Tucker. In 2012, well before her role in the OA, which musical artist joined the band Shearwater to cover the Tom Petty Stevie Nicks duet Stop Dragging My Heart Around for AV Undercover? An overlapping syllable between her name and that of the band enabled AV Club editor Josh Modell to suggest a blended name that evolved into a quasi-portmanteau that has been used to label the collaboration. Mm. Right, so I did watch the OA when it came out and then quickly forgot everything about it. So the band Shearwater, I know one song by Shearwater, but not a duet. So, so her name either ends in sh or starts with ter. Right. Overlapping syllable ends, ends with sheer or ends with ter. Terry something? Uh, Quasi portmanteau. Uh, yeah, I can't think of anybody that ends in sheer. 
No, a, a musical artist. Sorry. Over the top. Now, and it worries me that people are three hours into this podcast and we're humming. You know, <laughs> and uh, well, some of this is probably I, getting cut. Um, I, yeah, I hope you. I hope there's the. It can be condensed to the 45 minutes. Hey, where'd the three hours round go? <laughs> sheer water ter, ter, No, I think it's got to be ends in sheer. Bashier, like something. So we could pro- we could probably put a syllable in front of sheer to get a reasonable last name. Yeah, the yeah, sheer was- on Deep Space Nine. I don't think right. this is related to that at all. Basher. Asher, um, an overlapping syllable to me implies that it should be the same syllable. It shouldn't. It shouldn't change the sound based on the wording of the question. Yeah, but a quasi portmanteau. I didn't want to get bogged down in anyone's technical definition of what is and isn't a yeah, portmanteau. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. Right. 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 Uh, um, yeah, I'm just grasping at straws here. Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of thing. This this is again the sort of, you know, if under learned league day rules, I would be sitting, stewing on this for hours on end. That's my tendency because I, my feeling is that sooner or later I'm going to happen upon the answer. The big problem is recording, the thought process that's going to take five hours. That's probably a no. We could really um, blow the record out of the water. Or just do five <laughs> hours of us sitting here going <laughs> what syllables. <laughs> Could we use? And honestly, the more we do this, the more time we're giving Tucker not to like make it a game. But I mean, uh, I, washer, yeah. washer, washer, like you know, just Nelly washer water. In the in the interest of of uh, putting Yogesh out of his misery, go ahead and uh, you can do a, a lucky washer if you want. To. All right, we'll lock in washer. Okay. Yes. No. God. God forbid anyone treat this podcast as a game. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not what I want to see. <laughs> All right, Tucker, what do you think? Mm, I know I know who this person is, and that's why it's you know uh, frustrating to me that I've been spotted 50, 50 chance of getting one syllable right at either end of the name, and I don't have it at all. I mean, so a, a Tom Petty, you know, Stevie Nicks, typically like I, that would make me think, okay, this is a singer songwriter type, you know, mostly known for solo work, who probably would have been established a little bit by 2012. So this is someone who's been around for about, you know, 15 years or so at this point, at the time of recording, not not in 2012. Didn't really watch the OA, so I don't have an in there. And I was watching a lot of AV Undercover at the time because those were fun videos, but I must have skipped this one. So it means that it also wasn't somebody I was listening to at the time, which means I am straight out of luck. So uh, we are going to go with a lucky brushier. Okay. Yeah. So one of my favorite things about the the AV Club Undercovers is how cramped the studio is. So like all the musicians and singers have to really be close together. So uh, Jonathan Myberg, that's the the leader of Shearwater, something like that, Mayberg, Myberg, and this woman were essentially 
while they were singing the line, baby, you could never look me in the eye. They were literally like just a few feet apart, looking directly into each other's eyes, which I think I thought was a wonderful effect. But yeah, the blended name they ended up settling on to label them was Chiron Van Ettenwater. Oh my God. Oh, oh I could have gotten that. I was definitely listening to Sharon Van Etten at the time. Oh, well. <laughs> yep. All right. Tucker and Mike now to try and steal from Jack. What was the collegiate major of Tracy McConnell, a.k.a. the mother, on How I Met Your Mother? Oh, damn. Ted alludes to this at one point. Man, this is a really straightforward question. No hints in this one. Um, Alludes to this at one point. There's like a running, not quite joke, but like gambit in the series where he describes his ideal woman a few times. There's a few recurring bits. Like one is she plays ukulele. Another is I think like she wants two kids, a boy and a girl. So like things along that, those lines, I am pretty sure her collegiate major was not ukulele. So I'm trying to think if there was anything else in on, uh, on this that I can remember. Mike, do you have have anything that you wanted to say? I know that this the the only thing I could possibly do is randomly spit out majors and see if one of those triggers a memory for you because I I I have no knowledge here. And I guess one question is: Was this played for a joke? Like, was it a, a an oddity? You know, an odd major, or was it a more conventional major? No, I think it was conventional. And just thinking about it a little more, for whatever reason, French is sticking in my mind. So, yeah, like I want to say maybe a language major and I don't like, I don't know why I thought French. There's definitely an episode of, you know, the series that she's in or the season that she's in where it has her living in, I think it is, oh, hmm. She plays Moon River on ukulele forlornly while she was there. It's not one of the funnier episodes of the series or more comedic, I should say. So... So I, I guess she may have been in Paris and that would be a reason to think French. So are, are you okay if I say French here? I'm talking myself. Absolutely, into a, absolutely okay. am, yes. Yeah, okay, cool. I'm, I'm talking myself into a guess that I think has like a 20% chance of being right, but we will lock in French. All right, a very romantic major for a very romantic series. So I see the logic there, but it's not right. Jack? So the reason why you're thinking French is in that episode, she actually plays a ukulele and sings Lovey on Rose. Oh, that's the one. Yep. Um, the famous Edith Piaf song. And that is a very sad and probably one of the best episodes of the series, I would say. But she, the first time the mother and Ted were in the same room was when he accidentally walked into the wrong class to teach it. And that class was Econ 305. So she's a economics major. Yeah, if they had gotten it, actually, your bonus would have been naming Econ 305, the specific mm-hmm. class. But um, not, her, she, not her band, Super Freakonomics. I was just literally, you took the words <laughs> out of it. I was about to say, she also was in a band called Super Freakonomics. Another big hint there. Yeah. All right. So with one cycle remaining, that put Jack, took him from third to first. And Tucker and Mike are exactly 0.1 points apart. Just a little bit behind Jack. So very much anyone's game as we head into the final triad. Okay, so now we will we will give away what exactly it was that was tying together the previous two questions in yeah. this category of Mike's. <laughs> Tucker and Jack to try and steal from Mike. The remote 
Conan Plays Old Timey Baseball is a classic bit from Late Night with Conan O'Brien, although there are some moments that perhaps haven't aged well, as when Conan makes advances on a seemingly nervous and extremely pale, dark-haired woman who is LARPing as the wife of a Civil War soldier by declaring, You seem peevish right now. I hope I have not caused you vexations or any unpleasant cogitations, before adding that he wants to, quote, get it on, and then telling her that her husband is a bisexual coward. And an even more famous part of that bit, Conan asked that woman and three others who are all in 19th century character about their fathers. The other three state that their fathers are respectively a farmer, a tailor, and a farmer. When he asked the pale, dark-haired woman about her father, though, she uses what one word to describe him. Remember, this is a super hard round. I'm looking for precision. Okay, so the, the, the gist of it is that he's dead. <laughs> So I thought she said a two word thing to just said like he died. So, I mean, the one word to describe him would just be dead. Is and that the one uh, like, is that the one that she uses? It's not any of the, you know, like, a, you know, vexation or cogitations one where he's intentionally putting in like an older word for it. No, no, because nobody, none of the other people who are engaging in the role play are doing that stuff. Conan's coming okay. in and as Conan does, he's, kind of being a dick about it <laughs> but yeah so so the, the the real thing is does he does he does she say he's dead or he died so i think it's either dead or died and we're just giving mic points one way or the other. <laughs> all right you've seen this one i, think, I haven't yeah. uh, i will defer to your judgment i think it's died i'm gonna lock in died all right okay mike so yeah, Conan did act like a, a dick, and it was very greatly appreciated. In fact, the actress, who was kind of a, still remains kind of an, an enigmatic figure, was recently interviewed about that remote and said that she found him to be marvelous and a great, a great person to play her improv off, which came out of nowhere, and he really, uh, he really relished the opportunity. And I think that the real click for him with that character was what got him to burst out laughing and then apologize for laughing when she said the word past. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know at the time who that was. While researching this question, I discovered her name is Nell Del Guiducci. And yeah, she was recently uh, interviewed on a pod, like a behind the scenes podcast and had very positive things to say about Conan and the show or that she wasn't really aware of the show itself, but she enjoyed working with Conan. Yeah. And Yes, as if you had combined two, uh, Tucker's intuition about what kind of word you were looking for with Jack's memory of the bit, you definitely would have gotten there. But it was Mike who has the correct answer. Yep, nice job. Well done. Okay, penultimate it, question. It, 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 it is a remote worth revisiting about once a month, I find. <laughs> I mean, when, 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 when Conan is taunting the batter with 1860s lingo, he, he, he's really in his element. Yeah, so that nudged Mike ahead of Jack into first place. That's still two questions remaining. And Tucker and Jack now on the, sorry, Mike and Jack now on the penultimate question. And Tucker is definitely also within striking distance. In fact, if he gets this right, he will be, the tiebreaker may come into effect. Oh. (laughs) Okay, so here's the question. Jack Molinas was killed in 1975, shot five times while standing in his own backyard. What specifically led to his death? Take your pick. Molinas was involved in multiple realms of shadiness, including going to prison for his role in 
the notorious NCAA point-shaving scandal of 1961. He's also been tied to an even earlier point-shaving scandal that is most associated with what college's basketball team. The fallout from that affair was so devastating that this school, which won both the NCAA Division I Men's Basketball Championship and the NIT in 1950 under legendary coach Nat Holman, immediately de-emphasized athletics and now plays in an obscure Division III conference. Hmm. Uh, okay, the 1950 point shaving scandal. I know the school, the main problem is do I have the words in the right order? Um, oh, well, I might be able to help you out with that. Okay, this was known as CCNY, and I believe CCNY stood for City College of New York. It was a New York City based school that did this, this double in 1950. It is certainly not known as any sort of a basketball school now. So this is the super hard round. We can risk saying CCNY. I was wrong. I can't help you with this. So I'm going to defer and let you do what you need to do. So I'm confident in those four letters. I'm less confident in the full name. But because Yogesh left a door slightly ajar, I'm going to... The correct trivia play is to say CCNY and then see if we get prompted. Right. Unless I don't see yoga shaking his head. I'm going to say CCNY and see what yoga says back. And I am going to prompt you on that. (laughs) (laughs) As you should. And so my best guess is that it is called the City College of New York. Is that correct, Tucker? Uh, actually, CCNY stands for Crosby, Cattills, Nash, and Young. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, yeah, uh, you, you are correct. Nicely done. Oh. Okay. So we're going to use the first. Yeah. So I was worried someone would say CUNY, which is the name for the, yep. the umbrella term for the entire public university system of New York, whereas CCNY is one university within that system. So I also would have prompted on CUNY, but yeah. So we finally, on the penultimate question, we have an actual bonus for the first time, I think, in this game being called into play. Okay. So the 1961 point shaving scandal, not the 1950s one, but the 1961 one, meant that what future Hall of Famer, who was never shown to have done anything remotely illegal, was first blacklisted and then formally banned from the NBA. Only after triumphing in a lawsuit was he allowed to join the Phoenix Suns in 1969. Yeah, this was, let's see, I'm trying to think what team this took place on, and who had a weird NBA career. I know I've heard this, I've read this story, and yeah, well, this guy's definitely in the Hall of Fame. Mm, Okay, so he would have joined the Suns kind of like much later than you would expect. Yeah, okay. The only name coming to mind right now, and I, for whatever reason, I want to say this happened at Kentucky, so I'll say Alex Groza. Okay, yeah, I think the two big Hall of Famers whose careers were heavily affected by this were Roger Brown, who was never allowed to play in the NBA and played his entire career in the ABA, and this man, Connie Hawkins. Oh, it was Connie Hawkins, yeah. Yep. Okay, so heading into the final question, Mike and Jack are on opposite sides, so whoever gets this between them, we'll win the game. Mm-hmm. All right, so here's the question for Tucker and Mike to attempt to steal from Jack. Both the title 
Detective and her in-universe creator, Arthur K. Finkelstein, are protagonists of what charmingly metafictional 2019 puzzle adventure game that sees Finkelstein, under pressure to make his books grittier, involve his youth sleuth main character in an actual murder mystery that implicates her beloved mother. Though intended for a YA demographic, this game has developed a strong cult following among adults due to its narrative playfulness, three-dimensional characterization, immersive world-building, and gorgeous hand-drawn animation style. Well, congrats, Jack. Um, yeah, well, well done, Jack. <laughs> um, uh, wow. This is a puzzle adventure game. So this is not a video game, it appears. This appears to be a... It is a video game. Yeah, no. Oh, it, it is a video game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, oh, okay. This is going to be a thing I've heard of and won't be able to like pinpoint or like recall until like I hear the actual title. What is the thing that would have been oh 2019 too? That's oof. Youth yeah. This sounds fun. I don't yeah, yeah. I, I'm not seeing anything in the clue that suggests a way in if you don't know the title. There's nothing here that, you know, like with the catch 22 thing, I I at least I had something to grip. Uh, grasp uh, here i don't see anything that is going to yeah um, i have nothing <laughs> yeah all right yeah. um just if for the sake of making a guess and avoiding the uh the sandbag point taken away from us sure. uh, you want me to just okay cool we're saying conquer's bad for a final answer <laughs> <laughs> all right hey, so hey, that's, that's a game i actually played <laughs> all right so you you've all been pointing out how i've been complimenting every guest to the point of it becoming meaningless <laughs> so ju just for you i will say that that is a very bad guess whatsoever now we know where the bar is okay it was a video it is a video game <laughs> yeah the 2019 nintendo 64 game you know <laughs> Uh, you get you guys have actually been saying part of the name fairly often in your deliberations. This game is Jenny Leclue Detective. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean I don't I'm not a gamer myself. I have told myself though that as soon as I'm done with my MBA and you know I have actual free time and maybe cleared up some hard drive space, I'm going to to play this game because honestly, like when I was a kid. I read everything in the children's fiction department that involved kids solving crimes, like yeah. ev every series like that. And so it's this is, yeah. It's essentially Encyclopedia Brown, but then the whole pressure of the thing is the, the author is getting pressure from higher up to make it grittier. So it's kind of like, okay, what about, what, what would happen if Encyclopedia Brown's mom got was implicated in a murder? <laughs> oh boy, Wow. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there have been a few sort of broad comedies or, you know, sort of dark comedies in the past few years, like indie films that have had similar premises like Mystery Team and Kid Detective, which, you know, are interesting films. But from what I can see that the tone of this is entirely different. It's very much sort of just kind of a, a much more sort of like nostalgic and innocent vibe to it. And yeah, like I said, you know, when I was a kid, I would just go, you know, whatever mystery series it were, I'd take them by the armful and just scoop them into my bag and check them all out at once. So uh, I, I look forward to revisiting that world. And uh, yeah, so that is Jenny LeClue or Jenny LeClue Detective Vu to give the, it wasn't required to give that full title, but that is the full title.
All right. And with those points, Jack has retaken the lead. And the final scores are Tucker 31.0, Mike 42.1, Jack 45.1. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Well done, everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just all that remains is to give kind of the final sign off, which will go Jack followed by Mike followed by Tucker. So uh, yeah, anything you want to say, Jack? Well, I guess I'm kind of sad I didn't end up in the Victoria Gross Club of losing twice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thanks, Yogesh. I'm super glad, super happy to be back playing this and your excellent questions. Yeah. And I guess, I guess we'll see everybody in season three. <laughs> Let's hope so. All right, Mike. Because we're already uh, pushing the limits, I'm going to take a little extra time. We were f- first um, to join together uh, first week of March in 2020 when the world was beginning to end. And you know, now here we are a couple of years later. Yogesh became ill with the virus shortly after that, pushed through it, continued to create this podcast, continued to create really top quality content on faith. And, you know, I want to point out Yogesh in particular, but the people who create, who've been creating uh, work through passion and faith without the expectation of an audience, I really, in these past couple of years, have really come to appreciate their effort and sharing their talent with the rest of us without expectation, with hope, but not expectation of, of monetary compensation, but just appreciation. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the quality, the content, the, the effort, the passion. And as I said at the outset, it was, it's really an honor to come back. This is, this is a terrific endeavor. So thank you, Yogesh. Thank you very much. Now our newest inductee into the Victoria Gross Club. (laughs) It's going to be hard for me to follow uh, what Mike just said there. That was, uh, so I'd like to say what Mike said. uh, And then also add on, once again, thanks for having me on a third time. That is quite frankly, an irresponsible thing to do for most people. But, you know, uh, I appreciate you having me on nonetheless, and uh, continuing to let me say things and a place that you anything that you publish that is you normally shouldn't do that but despite that i do think that this is one of the probably the best trivia podcast there is in the world i always come here learning something new and of course this time i also have you know the uh you get to relive one of my famous childhood heartbreaks which was an extremely fun situation nonetheless i will be happy to show up whenever i'm invited back on which i think tells you something if you know who I am, where I am like not normally going to sit and let UConn be insulted like that by bringing up George Mason in 2006, but I will happily show up on any future episode of Recreational Thinking. So once again, thanks to both you and my competitors here who have gotten the best of me yet again, but that just speaks to their ability as quizzers and their general camaraderie as well. So see y'all. All right. Setting you up for the win in season three. Yeah. <laughs> Big comeback. There you go. If you do it, if we do this three times, maybe we can get one win from each of you. So yes, yeah, yeah. And then if we do it six times, maybe we can get every single order of finish mathematically. <laughs> I, I, I have to, I have, I have to have a firm twenty-four hour cutoff. Not more than twenty-four hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm definitely not going to ask you all to stay around any longer. <laughs> ah, I'm fine. <laughs> you could cut some of it out, but I think this is going to be over three. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I managed like the previous one, the soccer one. I literally got at like two hours fifty nine minutes and some seconds. I like I, I saw it was inching toward, and I was like, let me see if I can get under three. And I cut out a little bit, and it got right under three. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, this one will will be over. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and was that due to? I mean, was it problematic, or are we just too chatty? I mean, at this point, I think, you know, the people who are fans will listen. The thing is that like with podcasts, you don't have to listen to it all at once, right? If it's, you know, three hours long, you can listen to it in chunks. That's fine. You also, many people, I think, listen to this on 1.5. In fact, David Plotkin told me, he was like, I listened to this on 1.5 speed, but just so you know, I listen to everything else on two times speed. So this is- (laughs) That is such a David Plotkin thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So between that, like, it's not something like you, I think, you know, Mike, you've also mentioned listening to it, speed it up as well. You'll be, and I'll point out that I backed down to one time speed because I was missing so much. I, you know, I'm on my walk or I'm on the exercise bike and I, I what did he say? Yogesh said something important. This is going to come up again. So I, <laughs> I, 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 I give up. If it's four hours, it's going to be four hours out of my life. It's fine. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's modular, right? There is no reason that anyone has to sit and consume it all at once. So if it's three, you know, they could, they can treat it like three, one hour episodes then, which is hardly unreasonable, you know? That's how I listen to podcasters. I just pick it up and stop it when I need to stop. So like in terms of like choosing categories for this, I did not put these in expecting to play against you guys again, but like, I know a lot about video games. So if I'm ever on the show again, like I'm probably going to pick video games. Hell, if there, if there's a video game completely themed episode, hit me up, Yogesh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely I, wanting to do more single subject episodes. Game, game video games or games in general. I can, and, and I, I just happily yeah. listen to that episode from afar <laughs> where I don't participate. <laughs> I've been reading more and more and kind of watching YouTube reviews and so on of games, you know, so without actually like, becoming a player myself, I've been learning more about that world. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I enjoy learning about it. That's great. You asked about great games, like The Witness is, is amazing. Uncharted is very, it's popular for a reason. Like it's got, it's got its problems, but it's, it's still like a very good game and a well put together story. And Genial Clue is just fun. Hmm. Yeah, man, you've piqued my interest with those. So hey, counts for something. I, I guess I don't have to tell you guys that spending several hours Going down a rabbit hole with Conan O'Brien videos is definitely worth your time. So was it just Conan O'Brien music or like YouTube videos? Just Conan O'Brien. So the Walker Texas Ranger lever was the way into the first question. Okay. The thing is that I didn't. Oh, yeah. I hadn't seen that very much, but it rang a bell when Yogesh uttered the immortal phrase. Right. I, I can sit because you did just say Conan O'Brien. So I was on my yeah. radar to ask about stuff like look well, you know, to ask about stuff. Yeah. Andy, Andy Barker, P.I. or, you know, the Simpsons stuff. But in the end, you know, I was like, what are the most fun questions? You know, Walker, Texas Ranger, Lever, the, <laughs> the old time baseball remote. Yes. Yeah. yes. Well, I, there was another one I thought you might ask about. But if you have a chance on the Inside Conan podcast, which is behind the scenes, listen to the Brian Rich story. He spells his name like Reich, but it's Brian Rich. The Brian Rich story from when he left Conan O'Brien's show. I won't spoil it for you, but it is an amazing story. If you want to check that out. The Paul Rudd episode is good too. On the oh, the Paul, oh, God, the Paul yeah. Rudd. Oh, the, the, well, yes. that <laughs> Paul Rudd has that the history. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Conan genuinely time. says he, yeah. he, was, he was fooled. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, the Mac and Me thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm every time I'm a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and the the way, he doesn't like, he doesn't need to have the video anymore. Everybody yeah. knows the. <laughs> Well, when he asked Paul Rudd, like, was any of the lead-up stories? Everybody just goes, no. <laughs> Celia Weston and all the all this yeah, detail yeah. that this he gives such a shaggy story. That doesn't exist. It's fantastic. Oh, my, my favorite parts is, so, like, he shows the clip the first time and kind of remembers. And Paul Rudd's like, nah, here's the actual clip. Here's the actual clip. <laughs> he just shows it again. <laughs> Uh, I mean, national it's, it's treasure, quite, Paul Rudd. It's it's huh? quite clear that uh, he's going to speak at Conan's funeral and show that clip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he was I mean, at he, the final episode, right? And he did it again. Yeah, in the I, final I episode. So. I think he was. Uh, he, he crashed Bill Hader, I think. Or something yeah, he like did. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even even if he predeceases Conan, which we all know Paul Rudd is immortal and never will. That's right. But, yes, yes. But but if he does, he'll still find a way to to at Conan's funeral. Yeah, yes. it'll be part of his will. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. the executor's only job will be to do that. <laughs> well, guys, it's been a pleasure. My air my AirPods are dying, so that's a signal. But thanks very much for uh, spending Saturday afternoon. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great time. Thanks, thanks guys. Hang out with. So I'll see y'all later. Yep. All right. This has been episode 19 of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Thanks for listening.